Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalists Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. Now, Ryan Nicodemus is on vacation today. I actually was going to get him to call in. We were going to record this episode yesterday, and he was going to call in. We were going to go through a bunch of different segments. And then, of course, we had to postpone for various reasons, which we'll get to in a moment. But he'll be calling into the podcast next week on episode 356, and then he'll be back in studio for episode 357. In the meantime, you can wish him well, or you can rib him on Twitter. He's just at Ryan Nicodemus if you want to have some fun here. But today, we are here with uh, well, our team. Alabama's here. Good morning, everybody. T.K. Coleman is in the studio. What it is. Uh, <laughs> we got the rest of our team here as well. Jordan No More. We have Professor Sean. Danny Unknown. Adriel is here as well. Hanging out. A studio audience of one. Because, well, we have a, a special podcast today. Shout out to our private podcast subscribers. Shout out to our patrons. You keep this podcast 100% advertisement free because advertisements suck. We have a very special episode for you today. My wife, the one and only, Rebecca Shearn is here. Yes, girl! <laughs> it it's very awkward trying to bow in front of the microphone. <laughs> it doesn't work. That was pretty good. That was pretty good, yeah. <laughs> Bex is the host of the How to Love podcast. She's been gracious enough to let me co-host the podcast with her. We're 40 episodes deep into How to Love now. Wow. It's an audio-only podcast, and you can check it out wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Feedly, Google Podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. Or you can check out the long-form version where Bex and I dive into a lot of topics we probably won't talk about even here on this version of the Minimalist Private Podcast. Everything from unconventional parenting, unconventional relationships, how to bungle a threesome, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot that we talk about there. Also, wellness, especially with kids' wellness. Today, we're going to talk a lot about kids because we have some questions about kids. But we talk everything with respect to relationships. And I think, Bex, when we started this podcast, it was sort of the, the nadir of my life. I was having a lot of health issues. And I was like, man, I would love to just record five or six episodes with Bex mm. because for posterity. If I'm not here anymore, maybe we have some com meaningful conversations. We have them all the time. Maybe yeah. we could record a few of those. And I found that we were enjoying these conversations and we were both growing in ways and our vulnerability. I remember once we did a whole episode about resentment and our resentments toward each other and what we had been experiencing. And man, that's a difficult conversation to have. Were the resentments from the past or at, they existed at the time you were talking about? They existed at that yeah. time. Oh. We were like working through resentment on the podcast on the pod yeah 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 and, and so it becomes wow. that was episode 19 by the way and it's like a year ago wasn't it roughly? yeah yeah and and we still work through these sort of i would call them micro resentments and this is important to do in a relationship i found is what tony robbins would say like kill godzilla when he's a baby don't wait wait till he's taking over the city and that's all what happens in these relationships we were just enjoying the kendrick lamar album last week uh, me and danny were listening to it in in the studio here and he's got that one song where they're just fighting like brutal fighting bex and i listened to it once and i'm like oh I, my 
I had to turn, I asked you to turn it off halfway through. I'm like, I don't like listening to this. Like, right. It's so intense. Because Godzilla was taking over the city at yeah, that yeah. point. And to avoid ever getting to that point, it's about having these conversations around micro resentments or misunderstandings. Oh, what did you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Here's what I meant by that. And TK, you've helped me in many ways communicate better with people because you've helped me become a better listener. But also you've helped me understand that if... I didn't do a great job conveying something. It's not necessarily the other person's fault. Yeah, that's right. We have to think about communication, not in terms of right and wrong, but in terms of work doesn't, works doesn't work, right? When I Mm. say something, I have an effect that I wish to create with my words. And if I don't get that result, I can be right in my mind all day long about how much of an idiot the other person is being for not understanding me. But selfishly, I have an incentive to adapt to that other person in order to create the result that I want. So I'm impressed that you two were able to just do that, especially the resentments live. I have a hard time doing that with the past. Yeah, it's it's difficult to do that in a relationship. It's even more difficult to do that with microphones on in front of you because now you're talking about something like, oh, wow, this is raw. This is, yeah. Now, we don't have a ton of people who listen to the private version of How to Love, which you can find on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash how to love. If you are a, a Patreon subscriber of The Minimalist because you're listening to this, give it a month. If you want to try it out, you, you're welcome to, to join us over there. We have some relatively unfiltered conversation. We get really uncomfortable. Yeah. And we're going to do our best to make TK Coleman uncomfortable today. <laughs> And maybe everyone else in the studio as well. Let's get uncomfortable together. Let's have some uncomfortable conversations here. Let's start with our callers. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call 406-219-7839 or email a voice memo to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know that you're a a Patreon subscriber. That way we can prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Anonymous in... Texas. I come from a blended family. My husband has a 12-year-old daughter from a previous marriage. I have two daughters from a previous marriage, and we have a daughter together. His daughter is very, very spoiled. She's a really good kid, very well-behaved. But the grandparents, it's not even my husband, it's his mom and dad, they just overindulge her, which is really hard for my kids to see when she, every time she comes home, which she goes to their house a lot, she has something new and just like, oh, look what my grandma got. And then of course my kids are kind of sitting there like, oh, well, that's cool. I didn't get anything, you know? I don't like that. And I also just because I love and care about her too, I don't want her to become obsessed with consuming and wanting to buy things. I'm trying to raise these girls to learn that That is not what's important in life. And I'm not trying to be controlling. I'm not trying to step on their toes. You know, I know I'm the new wife over here and they've been doing things their way for a very long time. She's been the only grandchild until now. And it's just really hard to balance when there's four kids involved and one of them is just overindulged. I'm talking extravagant birthday gifts and... My husband, it doesn't bother him. You know, he kind of looks at it as if she's happy, if it makes my mom and dad happy to buy this stuff, you know, I don't see the problem. I just need to learn, I guess, how to live with not letting it bother me. And that's what I'm struggling with because I know I can't change things. I can't 
force people to stop, you know, doing what they're doing or, you know, but how do I feel better about living in a house where it's just goes against all I want to do for raising kids? And I love my husband so much and I will do anything to stay with him, be with him. So obviously um, I would never leave my husband because of this problem, but is there anything I can do to make life a little easier and for me to let go of how I'm feeling about this? Well, damn, my first bit of advice was to leave your husband. Now, <laughs> that's always my advice for Bex, by the way. Leave your husband. <laughs> Just go. Just go. <laughs> no, in fact, I don't have any advice. I do have some observations, though. And that's what Bex and I try to do with her podcast, How to Love, is... We call it how to love, but that is an intentional misnomer because there isn't a seven-step plan how to love someone. Really, a better name would be understanding love. And I think that's really part of the caller's question here. She said, how do I not be bothered? And of course, there isn't, well, here are the three things you do to not be bothered. Well, first you do jumping jacks, then you stand on one leg for seven minutes. And if there was some sort of mechanical recipe for that, great, it would be so easy to give it to you. But what we're really talking about here is understanding the problem, understanding Mm. what is upsetting you, understanding also the boundaries that you may need to set up. And so here's something pithy for you, caller. Sincerity and candor are the bricks and mortar that build boundaries. What do I mean by that? So first off, sincerity. Clearly, there's some sincerity here in your question. You don't want to approach the other people in your life with whom you are setting up boundaries in a passive aggressive way. That is not sincere. That's how you tear down boundaries. That's how you tear down an entire relationship. That's how you increase your own bother and you bother them more with a with some sort of passive aggressive attitude toward the relationship. But then there's the other side of the sincerity. You can be sincere, but you also have to be candid. You have to let them know what your standards are because if you don't if you don't tell them what your standards are, then how can they possibly know? How can they know that you feel as though it's being overindulgent when they feel it's being loving? You have two different opinions about the same thing here. Bex, do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she mentions it's a relatively new relationship, right? Yeah. And so you know, benefit of the doubt is they just don't understand where you're coming from, how you would like to live your life, how you would like to raise your daughters, right? Or your children. I didn't catch um, the the new one, the new addition. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yeah, it. so having the conversation, being candid, right? Um, I think that that is a great first step if you haven't done that already. Um Another couple thoughts that came to mind was like how differently the different children are being treated. Yes. And how one of the things that I really appreciated about our relationship, and especially with respect to to Ella, our nine-year-old daughter, is that from day one, when she was a year and a half, two years old, Mm -hmm. you treated her as your own. Yeah. You referred to her as your daughter. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even though um, presumably unlike this relationship, like you didn't want children. Mm -hmm. Like that was never in the cards for you. Um, And yet we met and we fell in love and Mm. you transferred that love onto Ella and you embraced her wholeheartedly. 
And the thing that I heard a couple different times was like, my kids versus his kids and then our kid together. And it sounds like the grandparents have also internalized that that sort of separation, that differentiation between the different children. Yes. And maybe a thought is, is not only having the discussion around um, the different ex- sort of expectations with respect to stuff and experiences what and whatnot being uh, unequally distributed between the children, but like maybe just here's how we would like to function as a family, mm. not as individual units of children or groupings of children, you know? Yeah. So it, getting everyone on the same playing field, right. so to speak, and then ba- building the boundaries from there because it becomes yeah. really difficult if you say, well, this kid has you know, these boundaries and so we can only do this for this kid and we start segregating all of our kids and treating them differently mm-hmm. and pretending as though, well, you know, I, if, imagine if like Ella does something that I disagree with or I dislike. She does something I hate. I don't all of a sudden say, look what your daughter has done. Right. No, I'm also responsible here. And so, because she lives in our house with us, we are her parental figures, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. And so, all floating the blame, as opposed to, and what I love about what the caller's question here, she's trying to take responsibility for the situation. She just can't figure out how right now. Yeah. So I have one thought and then a question for the two of you with how you deal with this with with Ellie. So when it comes to having that conversation, I thought that was a really good suggestion. It's a new relationship. Maybe you all just haven't talked about it. And it's as simple as having a conversation. One thing I want to suggest about the conversation is to um, converse with specificity. Something that I see a lot with coaching, managing, and parenting is whenever we have a problem with another person's behavior, we tend to give them abstract recommendations. I need you to be more mindful. Mm. I need Mm. you to be more punctual. I need you to be more considerate. And that's very abstract. And it it sort of just keeps things in the realm of like nebulous character traits that you think the other person needs to develop. But it helps when you can be specific. Instead of, I need you to be more mindful. Like, hey, when you see your little sister in the bathroom, don't just barge in. Knock if knock first if you need to go in and wait for a response, right? I need mm-hmm. you to be more punctual. Like, hey, out of consideration for the team, I need you to be here 15 minutes before starting time, right? The more you can, you know, make your recommendations or your requests in a specific way, the more that other person can look at it as something concrete that they can act on or an easy adjustment that they can make. The question I have, I hear this second issue This issue of, hey, when he does something for his child, it bothers me because I can't or won't do the same for my child. And now my children might feel bad because they're looking at another kid in the family who gets to experience a privilege that they don't. Sometimes that's unavoidable. Sometimes that's a part of life where you have to sit there and watch your child feel the sadness of seeing another kid, whether it's one of their cousins or something like that, get something that they don't get. How do you guys deal with that in your family? I mean, it's nice because Ella's just a child of one, (laughs) right? So within our family dynamic, we don't have that direct thing. But she has cousins, she has great friends, you know, that lead very different lives than, than we do. And yeah, it is helping them learn to sit with the discomfort of comparison. Yeah. Right. I think it's also about seeing the benefits. So quite often it's like, oh, what I'm hearing in this question is, oh, you know what? 
this kid doesn't have as many toys as that kid and therefore it's perceived to be bad. Mm -hmm. I think Ella quite often perceives it as good. Mm. And she understands that there's no good or bad. We often have this conversation with her with respect to like, this toy isn't morally good or bad. And having more toys isn't good. Having fewer toys quite often is good. She understands the benefits of the extra space. In fact, when we were trying to decide the... um, what bed to put in her room. When we all sort of moved uh, into Ventura County together, we, she, was, she had a queen-size bed at one house and she had a, a twin-size bed at the other. Hey, which one do you want? Do you want the big bed or do you want the, the smaller one that gives you more space? I want more space in my room. She wants more openness. She yeah. doesn't see it as the void. As Alan Watts often talks about, like space just sort of confers the material itself. And so you if you get more space, it also sort of honors or acknowledges the materials that are there. That's not to say she doesn't have toys. Ella definitely has toys. Ella owns more stuff than Bex and I do. And that's okay, right? It's in her boundaries. Her boundaries are we have this big dresser mm. where all of her toys go. And we have a bookshelf where all of her yeah. books go. And if she needs more books than that, then she has to remove a book because the boundary has already been reached. She needs more toys. Quite often, she'll go through her own toys now without Bex asking, without me asking. And she'll say, hey, can we give this? I'm not playing with this anymore. Can I give this to a kid who might enjoy playing with it? And oh, isn't that the best feeling? Because we didn't tell her, hey, you should get rid of this. Hey, why aren't you grateful for these things that you own? No, she sees it through our own behavior repeatedly. Well, one of the other things that she did relatively recently and maybe a a sort of related experience to the the caller's experience is she does have two separate households, right? She lives Mm -hmm. with us for part of the year and she lives with her father, her biological father for part of the year. And her experience in those two places is very different. Oh, yes. Um, And recently we were talking uh, on FaceTime with her and I don't remember how it came up. Josh, you might be able to uh, refresh my memory, but... She ended up showing us her closet. Yeah. And it was just like bubble, like overflowing, <laughs> literally overflowing out of her closet wow. onto the floor. Like there's just stuff everywhere. It was also figuratively overflowing. She, you could see the anxiety mm-hmm. and the sort of madness in her facial features. And she looked at us, she said, I would feel calmer if I didn't have as much stuff in this closet. And so Bex just asked her, okay, well, are there some things in there you could get rid of? And she goes, yeah, let me see. And so we're on FaceTime with her. And she starts without us telling, because I could tell her, hey, you know what, Ella, you need to declutter your closet. No, no, no. Yeah. Bex just asked a question. Hey, would you feel calmer? Are there any things that you might want to get rid of? Mm. Asking questions is a far more effective way to parent. It's also an effective way to set boundaries with the people around us Mm -hmm. because you're not telling them, no, no, no. You're not prescribing something. You're not being didactic. You are simply asking a question that allows them to get to a realization or a better understanding of the things that are causing that anxiety, that stress, that, that feeling that we have i got all this stuff and it's causing all this sort of emotional clutter inside me. I love that, man. You know, so, I mean, you know, with this question, I, I always like to think about solutions in terms of what can I control? Mm-hmm. What's within my locus of control? If, if my solution depends on me successfully getting another person to change, 
then I'm bound to feel powerless, resentful, and frustrated. And it's not that sometimes people don't owe us that in some sense of the word, but you don't always get what other people owe you. Mm. And so you have to have a game plan for what do I do? How do I live when other people don't do right by me in the way that I define right? And I think the best way to keep things in your locus of control with respect to this situation is decide how are you going to communicate your values to your children in a way that is resilient in the presence of someone who lives with them and has a different set of values. You know, a belief isn't very powerful if it needs everyone else to believe it in order to be useful to you. And so something to teach children very early on is how to hold their values in a meaningful way without requiring the rest of the world to agree with them. Because Mm. if you need that, you'll never be able to last for 24 hours in this world. Oh, that was so good. That's beautiful. Caller, I'm going to send you a copy of Ryan's and my last book. It's called Love People, Use Things, Because the Opposite Never Works. Well, there are seven different chapters in there about the seven different essential relationships we have in our lives. Our relationship with stuff, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with money, our relationship with our values. But the chapter I think you'll find the most value in, it's actually my favorite chapter in the book, it's our relationship with people. And it's about the sort of tension that we have with other people that at first we want to get rid of, but often it's that tension that makes us and the dynamics that we have, it makes us feel alive. Mm. And so I think you'll enjoy the audiobook version if you like our podcast, or if you want the book book or the ebook version of Love People Use Things, I'll be happy to send those to you as well. Our next question is from Sori in London. I'd like to know what we really need to buy for an unexpected new baby while we maintain the minimalist. Furniture, baggies, accessories, clothes, and a bathing item is overwhelming. Can we alternate them with what we usually already have at home? Bex, I'm thinking about our friend Beulah, who helped design the beautiful studio that we're in right now. It's not just, if you're watching this on camera, it's not just a, a black abyss. There's a beautiful couch there and <laughs> the carpet, and she even picked the, the paint colors. Uh, it's whisper white, I believe. <laughs> and... She uh, she had a kid recently, and her kid doesn't need all the things that we often think that we need or we need to buy the kid. Mm-hmm. And she told me this great story the other day. Her neighbors came over. They're getting to know their neighbors. I guess their neighbors have a kid as well. And so they came over to Beulah's house, and Beulah is a minimalist. You can find her on Instagram, by the way, at Beulah. We'll put a link to her handle in the show notes. But her friends came over to her house, uh, husband and wife couple. And they're like, oh, it's really nice in, in your house. But where's all the stuff? <laughs> and they're like, this is all the stuff. There is no other stuff. There isn't a secret storage locker. There isn't a special hidden room that's full of clutter. This is the stuff. And what you learn, especially when you're having a kid, you all of a sudden feel as though you're inadequate. Every new parent is an inadequate parent right? What does Kapil Gupta say? Virtually no one on earth should be a parent (laughs) because, well, we're none of us are prepared for. And so what do we do to try to compensate for our lack of preparation? I'll just buy some things. We do this in relationships as well. Mm -hmm. You and I have talked about this on How to Love, Bex, where sometimes we try to affect love by here is a car, here is a piece of jewelry, here is some token of my affection. I'm mistaking the material object 
for real love. To love someone is to see them for who they are. And I'm actually trying to add value to your life by giving you a thing. Nothing wrong with a gift. Nothing wrong with a heartfelt gift. But when we conflate that with love, then all of a sudden we think we need the things in order to be in a relationship with someone, including being in relationship with our children. Providing for our children does not mean that we have to give, give, give. We need to give more. The better parent, you know, if Ella has one bin of toys, her life isn't going to be 10 times better if I give her 20 bins of toys. In fact, those 20 bins are not going to get in the way and her life is going to be markedly worse because of all the excess. So excess often makes us miserable, anxious, concerned, distraught. And so here's what I'll tell Sori. Wanting what you have trumps getting what you want. Quite often, we feel incomplete. I want to get what I want for me. And the same is true for our kids. I want my kids to have this, this, and this because I feel as though what? They're supposed to have the 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 warmer for the um, uh, baby wipes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're supposed to have the appropriate uh, cradle. Like even having a cradle for a kid isn't a necessity and Buell approved that. Yeah, yeah. I I think that what you're trying to get at here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you want to make sure that you hold your values and assess your values as you're going into new chapters of your life, like becoming a parent, right? And so... You, you need to know what you want as you go into those next chapters and your values inform, theoretically, what you would want. And one of the things, I, I was not a minimalist in label terms mm-hmm. um, when I was pregnant with Ella and when she came into this world. I have always valued simplicity and living with what you need, right? And so... Um, I use that to inform, like, for example, our registry, like we we had a few things on a registry, you know, diapers and onesies and essentials, things that your child does need. You, your child needs to be clothed. They need to have somewhere to go to the bathroom, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so putting together, you know, a very small arsenal of the things that you really do need mm-hmm. um, and then saying no thank you to the other things while giving people an option to provide for you in a way that will actually add value. So whether it's, um, you know, maybe funds for books or, you know, items down the road, maybe a little bike or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But you don't need the, you know... (laughs) Excess. Yes, that, that... Everyone seems to think you do. Beulah co-slept or co-sleeps with her baby. That was not an option for me. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have slept. Yeah, you're a very light sleeper. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so you do have to understand where your, you know, needs and boundaries are, especially with respect to your your new baby. So co-sleeping might be a great option. That might be able to, you know, and that way you might be able to not need a larger house Mm -hmm. or a crib or a, you know, changing tables like, they're almost always superfluous. Um, it's it's easier to change your kid on the floor most of the time than on a changing table. That's right. You know, so being creative with how um, you meet the needs of the the child while also meeting the needs of of yourself and your partner. 
um, as minimalists. And Beulah did a beautiful job, does a beautiful job of explaining what that process looked like with a newborn. Mm -hmm. Um, And now um, her son is one-ish, and she's sort of walking people through what what this looks like now with with a one-year-old. I will say that for for Sori, the... um... Oh, I was going somewhere with this and I totally lost it. Oh, the the values thing, but then also the questions, whether you, whether or not you need something. Yeah. So mm-hmm. there are these five questions that Ryan and I always ask before you buy something. And I think this really applies to your children because they don't think they need all these things. We've created these concepts that I need the diaper warmer. I need the changing table. Your baby isn't thinking, oh, we really need a changing table. Yeah. And so we've invented all of these needs. And so there are these five questions asked. You just go to the minimalists.com slash before. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And you ask these questions, but one of these is, will this add value to my life? Meaning, does it serve a function or does it bring some sort of aesthetic value or beauty that is that I'm better off than if I didn't have it? And the way that you really determine that, as well as the other questions that you're asking, is by temporarily going without those things. Because if you get a thing, then you feel compelled to use it. If you have the baby changing station, you feel compelled to use it because, oh, I'd be wasting money if I didn't use it, right? And then you figure out like, oh, wait, maybe maybe I didn't need this. Maybe it's actually getting in the way. Mm -hmm. Maybe my life would be better without it. And that's a sign to let it go. But of course, not buying a thing is simply letting go in advance. One other thing, TK, and I like to talk to you about this as well. But for Sori, understanding the values, as Bex pointed out, I think is is critical here. And there are different types of values. We have a values worksheet over at The Minimalists. You can download it for free. You can print it out. You can figure out what your values are because it's pretty hard to determine what values you want to impart on your children mm-hmm. if you don't even know what your values are. Yeah. So head on over to theminimalists.com slash V, as in values. There's an essay there as well. It's called How to Understand Your Values. What are your thoughts for Sori? So the first thing I'll say is, is there's this really cool article by Jason Freed called Give It Five Minutes. And he talks about how there, he was at some lecture and the guy was saying all sorts of things that he disagreed with. And literally, as soon as the lecture was over, he storms up to tell the guy just everything that he thought he said that was wrong. And the guy says, dude, just give it five minutes. <laughs> and he said he realized just how slow he was to process another person's words but how quick he was to express disagreement. And what the guy was trying to communicate to him is, hey, your opportunity to disagree with me is still going to exist five minutes from now. Can you at least just take that time and use it as space to interpret me charitably? You don't still need to agree at the end of it all. And I think that's a good rule when it comes to buying things that we think we need. Mm -hmm. Give it five minutes or five days or five weeks. Whatever time period you can work with, I think it's good to have a built-in buffer that you follow like a rule and say, outside of any emergency situations, if I think I need something that I'm not going to die without today, I make my decision to get it, but I have to wait five days yeah, or a certain amount of time. And then if at the end of that period, I still want it, okay, I can go ahead and get it. But sometimes having that buffer allows you to get out of the moment 
and sort of curb those impulse decisions that can happen. Because man, those objects on the shelf have a way of calling out your name and saying, I'm much safer in your house. If you bring me home with you, I'll be much safer. And so I think that can be a very good thing that you can use to kind of think about the stuff that you want. Another thing is you said, um, getting what you want or wanting what you get is better than getting what you want. Mm. I'll, I'll add something to it uh, that, that says, um, wanting what you get is a necessary practice. Getting what you want is a negotiable assumption. What I mean by that is when it comes to getting what you want, you don't really know if you want it yet because you don't have it. You don't know if you'll want it until you actually get it and see all that it entails to be the possessor of that thing. What you have is a belief that you're going to feel better with it or a belief that you're going to be more fulfilled when you get it. You might be right, you might be wrong, but it's a negotiable assumption. And if you are successful in getting what you want, one thing that is for sure is you're going to find out that having what you want always entails challenges that you couldn't have predicted. And so practicing the art of wanting what you have is necessary, right? So wanting what you get is always going to be necessary in order to be happy. Getting what you want is always negotiable. Sometimes you're right about your assumptions, sometimes you're wrong. And so I would say start practicing that necessary component early on and you'll begin to realize that the way you know if you need something else is when you make the most of what you already have and that's still not enough. Mm. Can I make a concrete example out of what yeah. you were just saying? So we did that when I when Ella was born, you know, purposely brought in, you know, only the things that we really, really thought we would need. And one of the challenges, I think, with being becoming a new parent, especially becoming a first time new parent, is there is always a certain amount of anxiety that is involved with becoming a new parent. Like you were saying, Josh, I think all of us uh, on some core level realize like we aren't ready to be parents mm. no matter when it happens. You're so ready after the fact. Like I'm really ready now to to parent a two-year-old even though Ella's nine, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. not ready to parent a nine-year-old. Right, right, exactly. And so I think mm. uh, oftentimes, especially on a society-wide level, we we make up for that nervousness and that worry and that anxiety by trying to bring in all the things we could potentially need yeah. in order to mitigate that that worry and that anxiety in those potential situations. Um, but if you can wait five minutes or wait five weeks or whatever and not bring those things in immediately and just sit with like, yes, there could potentially be a situation where I need a swing, a baby swing, for example. And so Ella came into this world and was rather hard to soothe. <laughs> and I learned a few weeks in that she really liked being swung. She she hyper responds in a good way to, to movement and big movements at that. And mm. so for the first few weeks, not the first few weeks, but, you know, weeks four through eight or whatever, I took her... Um, her car seat, her baby car seat, the portable piece, and swung it like a kettlebell. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd been doing kettlebell training before when I was pregnant with her. It's like, okay, well, maybe I can do this. So I was swinging her, you know, between my legs, back and forth, and it worked really well. And then I threw up my back. Mm. Oh, man. And so it was like, okay, I can't keep doing that. We'll get a baby swing. So that was when it was like, okay, we'll bring in the baby swing. And luckily, you know, it wasn't a 
terrible back out. It was like one day kind of on the couch sort of thing. But even with the baby swing, we found that we had to sort of push it a little extra to get it the amplitude that she kind of needed. So yeah, there's a few more examples um, along those same lines. One has to do with diapers. Mm. I was really like my values were like, I really want to cloth diaper my baby. Like the environmental impact of disposable diapers was just feeling really overwhelming. So we got this um, you know, large amount of of cloth diapers and I found a diaper service that would launder them. So I didn't have that extra um, burden of laundering them because that just seemed like too much. And I did that for like six months. And then I was like, yeah, no, like after going back to work after three months and like doing the, the cloth diapering, continuing to do the cloth diapering for three months after that, the six month mark kind of hit. And I was like, yep, no, it's time to switch. And so honoring when it is time to bring in a different approach or a, a different tool into your toolbox, I think is another um, powerful piece of this equation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being able to wait is a virtue. Yeah. And being able to pause. In fact, we, we call it the wait for it rule. And the steadfast rule that we put in place, it's in the minimalist rule book, 16 rules for living with less. You can download it for free, theminimalists.com slash rule book. We also call it the 30-30 rule. If something costs more than $30, wait 30 hours. So basically wait a day if it costs more than 30 bucks. Now, if it's a, more than a hundred bucks, maybe it's 30 days, right? Well, you get to set those thresholds and maybe it's not 30 bucks for you. You get to figure out whatever that threshold is, but it's just pausing and saying, reflecting, do I need this? Will it actually improve my life? And is this the best use of this money? Because I don't have infinite money. And so if something costs me $37, okay, I can afford that. But is that the best use of these $37? If not, maybe I'd rather allocate that money somewhere else. Our next question is from Curious in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been married for over 20 years. We have six kids. We have a great marriage. We're best friends and love spending time together. One thing that continues to happen is that I express that holidays are important to me, that just a small, not last minute, not expensive gesture is appreciated, a car, dinner, but almost every time the occasion is not celebrated, my birthday, our anniversary. He's a great guy. These things just do not hit his radar, even though I've calmly told him they are important. I don't understand how a person shelves all their expectations, especially after they've been expressed and is not hurt after it happening repeatedly. Because to me, it's just pretending not to be hurt. I think it's not possible to walk through life without some expectation. I would say that no one has said it's possible to walk through life without expectations. This is actually a a call response. And Curious, thank you so much for your question. It's very heartfelt. And I can tell that you're, you're struggling right now. I have a lot of compassion for that because uh, I've certainly struggled with miscommunications, not just in my current relationship with Bex. Bex and I, we unpack that on her podcast, How to Love, about some of the miscommunications that we often have. And not fault-finding, not blaming the other person, but trying to find the actual fault, the fault line that we have fallen into, so to speak. And so Mm. I think this is a, a response to, we did an, an episode about expectations with Matt Nathanson. And so Curious is calling because what she heard there, when I talk about expectations being a roadblock on the highway to happiness, what she heard was, hey, how can I shelve all of my expectations? That's not it at all. Just like 
there's a difference between asceticism and hedonism. Those are two sort of terminuses, termini, on the, the sort of consumption continuum. And minimalism is somewhere in the middle, right? Because as a minimalist, I'm not saying don't own anything. I'm not saying be an ascetic. I'm not saying abstain from all worldly pleasures. I mean, the ascetics, they took it really, really far back in the day. They would like sleep on broken glass and and things to not just try to remove pleasure from their life, but to become comfortable with severe pain. Not saying that that is a great thing to do, right? Buddhism, they call the middle path, right? I would call minimalism the middle path for consumption because it's not about living with nothing. And it's also not about embracing every hedonistic impulse. We do a segment, and we'll do it here later on the private podcast. We do the segment about checkout line wisdom, where the the impulses that we often gravitate toward at a checkout line at a grocery store, a convenience store, or a department store, they often, they try to pique our interest through impulse, impulse purchase, right? And these impulses are also roadblocks on the highway to happiness. And so, curious, I'm not telling you that you should shelve all of your expectations. Rather, what I'm saying is, as soon as we begin to understand our expectations and how absurd many of our expectations are, when we start saying our expectations out loud, those expectations cease to have the same value that we once assigned to them. They don't have the same gravity, the same weight that they once had when they were just hanging out here in our mind. We're creating all these expectations, all these shoulds. TK should do this. Jordan no more should do this. My wife should do this. These are all expectations I've created. And as soon as I see how absurd most of my expectations are, I can let go of those expectations. Or even if they're still there, they don't carry nearly as much weight. Perfectly said. I'll just add to that, that, you know, curious, you you said, you know, you've got this wonderful 20-year marriage, you've got six kids together, he's a great guy. That's That's what to focus on, right? Like, you clearly love and appreciate your husband. And I would assume he clearly loves and appreciates you. Hmm. What are the ways in which he shows you that love and appreciation outside of the specific ways that you want him to show you that? Yeah. You know, the card on the anniversary or the birthday item or, you know, whatever the, the balls that you feel like he's dropping or the expectations that you have of him acknowledging those, those special days are that he's not meeting. What are the other ways in which he shows you that he really does love you, right? For example, like, um, Josh will frequently bring me coffee in bed. He's up early, you know brings me coffee in bed, wakes me up with a kiss and a, co- a cup of coffee. Not saying that's the <laughs> the standard or anything, but that's just something to me that 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 shows me that he's thinking about me, that shows me he loves me. Um, what are the things that your husband does for you that are like that, that you can acknowledge and um, take pleasure in instead of looking to the things that he's clearly not either able or willing or some combination of the two um, to, to meet your needs on the other front. He doesn't care about those things as much as you yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is that you think that he should care about those things. Mm-hmm. And so if we were doing an episode of How to Love right now, I, I would probably have a lot more tough love with respect to this, the, this question because we often dish out or dole out 
some tough love on yeah. how to love because we experience tough love. And let, let me explain what I mean by that. If your expectation, Bex, was that I brought you coffee in bed every morning, mm-hmm. it would not be the same sort of joy for me to provide that to you because I would merely be meeting an expectation. I, I would be doing the bare minimum in order to pacify you, essentially. Right, right. And so, curious, one thing you might not realize that you're doing right now is you're asking in some way to be pacified a little bit. Here are my expectations. And if you meet them, then I will be what? Well, what do you think is going to happen if he meets all of your expectations? I can tell you what will happen. If you have 100 expectations and he meets 99 of them, you're going to be discontented about the one that he does not meet. Or even worse, he meets all 100 of your expectations. What do you have then? You have absolute certainty. What do you get out of absolute certainty? You get boredom. You're going to make your relationship really, really boring if all you're doing is setting up these expectations for someone else to meet. And that just that's not just for your husband, by the way. That's any other relationship in your life when we have all these expectations. If they are met 100%, now what do I have? Absolute certainty. That's what hell looks like. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so there are two aspects I see to creating a healthy and happy life. One aspect is learning how to live healthfully and happily when you can't get what you want. Because Mm. sometimes reality says no, no matter how bad you want it. You got to have a philosophy for what am I going to do during those moments. But the second aspect is, how can I give myself the best chance possible to create the results that matter most to me? And I want to speak to that second part because I do think that first part is important. I do think it's valuable for you to give your husband permission to be whoever and however he needs to be without giving that the power to ruin your day or your holiday. But one of the things you said was, I've said this over and over again, I've made this clear and it's clear like that he doesn't hear or that he doesn't get it. This is a very common challenge in relationships, by the way. And one of the reasons this is a challenge is because when you talk to him about what matters to you, you're speaking from a place of conviction. And you rarely have to use your memory when you're speaking from that place. You're not following an externally imposed rule that someone gave to you. You're just speaking about what makes you feel joy. And you're asking him to remember that. Because he has different convictions than you, different interests than you, he's going to have to take that on as a kind of external rule to follow. Not necessarily legalistically, but it's something that he has to remember, right? And that means it's going to be harder for him to hang on to that automatically than it is for you. And so having to remind him, having to bring it up multiple times is something that it would be good to be prepared for even if you are successful in the end. Just, I would adjust my expectation in that way. Another thing I would say is, we talked about this a little earlier, specificity is so important when making requests of other people. Sometimes it feels like the value of a gift is compromise when we have to spell out for other people what we want them to do. It's sort of like if I buy you flowers, well, if I catch you by surprise, it means so much. But if every day you're disappointed with me and then you have to spell it out, TK, it would mean something to me if you bought me some freaking flowers for my birthday. And then I do it, it kind of <laughs> feels like, oh, he only did it because I told him to. Is that really true though? Is it true that you could have literally told anybody in the universe to buy you flowers on your birthday and they would have cared enough to spend their own money and time to do that? Or is it possible that we become attached to a narrative that has some value, but that isn't the absolute truth and final word? It's a narrative. And Mm. all narratives are negotiable. Sometimes 
in order to get what we need from other people, we do have to spell it out and drop the narrative that it won't matter if they help us. And so what I would say is I would recommend going back and communicating again, but this time, not in the abstract. And I don't know how you said it, so I don't want to assume anything about you, but I would avoid things like, hey, look, the holidays mean a lot to me. I would really appreciate it if you kind of, you know, got on board, if you kind of got into it a little bit. What I would do is I would say, okay, over the next few years, I'm going to get more of what I want when it comes to the holidays. And I'm going to start with one thing this year. I'm going to, I'm going to identify one specific thing it would make me happy for him to do. Hey, it would mean a lot to me this Christmas if you baked an apple pie. You think you could do that? And to be honest, he sounds like the kind of guy that would say yes to that sort of thing. Or if you said, hey, do you think you could help me plan a Christmas party for the kids on December 24th this year? That would mean a lot to me. He sounds like the kind of guy that might be down for something like that. But I think if you say something like, the holidays are really important, I really need you to understand, it would really mean a lot to me if you were more involved, that's going to be very easy for him to fail because you're operating from conviction and he's operating from the standpoint of someone who just doesn't have this thing as his thing and just might, be benef- just might benefit from being told what to do. I think if you can be specific in that way, you might get more of what you want. And then maybe add a new thing each year. That's a patient process, but you've been going 20 years without anything. Maybe get one thing this year, get two things the next year. And before you know it, you got yourself a life. I like that Mm -hmm. we're talking about these expectations. You reframed it. They're not necessarily expectations in that sense. They're a narrative here. And so what is the narrative that you can let go of? Because it's not about getting rid of all your expectations. Or as she said, I love the metaphor, shelving the expectations. Because guess what? When you shelve something, you still have it. And so you don't want to shelve your expectations. What you want to do is you want to see them for what they are. They're a narrative. And when you actually see them for what they are, the expectations will lose their power. We got some questions from social media. You can follow The Minimalists on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Minimalists. You can follow Bex at Minimal Wellness on Instagram. And I think that's just about it. Instagram at Minimal Wellness. (laughs) You can find her there. We have a question from Amelia on Instagram. Just a heads up from the UK. The name of your first Patreon deal is an ableist slur. Now that you know it's offensive, are you going to change it? (laughs) Oh, interesting. Let's talk about this. Okay. So uh, I understand where you are coming from, Amelia, but we probably need to talk about a a few things here. Uh, First off, you're offended, and it's not my job to unoffend you. In fact, let me be honest with you. Let me tell you a little secret. I can't offend you. I do not have the power to offend you. And if you're listening to this, you're watching this, I don't have the power to offend you either. Now, you can say you're offended by something that I say, something that TK says, something that Bex says, but we don't actually have that power to offend you. You offend yourself. And here's what I'll say about, we call all of our listeners simpletons, right? Now, that is not a ableist slur. I want to be clear about it. What the difference between a a denotation and a connotation, right? A denotation is what a word means. Well, a simpleton is a foolish or gullible person. That's the definition of a simpleton. I happen to be both. We Ryan and I picked simpletons a long time ago because he was the foolish one. I was the gullible one. And uh, we picked simpleton to reclaim a word that had a pejorative meaning to it, not an ableist slur, but it had a pejorative meaning. 
But why did we do that? Let's talk about why someone might reappropriate a word that otherwise is considered a slur. Anybody know of any words that, I don't know, people have used as slurs and then some group of people reappropriates that word in a way that makes them feel connected with other people? Well, I do. There's quite a few. But one for us was simpleton because, well, it's a triple entendre. We're simple and there's a ton of us now, simple ton, <laughs> a ton of simple people. But also, what does it show? Ryan and I don't take ourselves very seriously. Okay? We call our listeners simpletons because, by the way, they voted on it. We asked all of our listeners, hey, we're, we're thinking of, what do we call our audience? Hmm. Are you minimizers? Are you minimalists? Are you intentionalists? Are you essentialists? What do you want to be called? Minis? <laughs> and they all voted overwhelmingly. Thousands of people voted for Simpleton. And so he said, hey, this group of people, we're all acknowledging that we don't take ourselves seriously. We have to be able to talk about some things in a serious manner, but through levity. Because it's going to crush me if I have to pretend that all this materialism stuff, which is ruining a lot of lives, if I have to take it so seriously, like I'm a calculus textbook, I'm not going to be able to communicate with people in a way. Mm. Now, can that word be used as a slur? Sure. That's what connotation means. A, I, I don't use it that way. And Amelia, I hope you are not using the word that way as an ableist slur either, right? But there are other words. Bex and I used to live over here in Boys Town, right? And the word gay, it's in the Flintstones theme song. It means happy, right? But you can also use it as a pejorative. Oh, that's gay. Okay. Well, how are you using the word? Am I ever using the word simpleton to make fun of someone? No, of course not. I would never use that in a derogatory way. What we've done is we've reclaimed the word in a way that allows us to have fun, to be part of an in-group. Hmm. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> it, it's interesting because this, this brings up uh, so many issues. For one, it brings up the issue of being concerned with how I sound when I say it versus being concerned with what I am intending to convey. And if the problem is with how I sound when I say it, then we can have a conversation about my semantics. Should I use different language or whatever it may be to express myself? Or is the conversation about what I intend to mean? And we do live in a world now where you will get checked very fast at the level of how you sound when you say something mm. without any examination being you know, performed with regards to what do you intend to convey. And I think this is tragic and I do not accuse the questioner of doing this, but I, I think as a broader phenomenon, it's tragic when, when this particular thing I'm describing happens because what happens a lot, especially online, is someone will say something and mean something benevolent and another person will call them on it um, over the fact that they said it in a way that sounded bad. And now you have someone who, instead of being educated or instead of, you know, being engaged intelligently, they're, they're being buried. They're being piled on top of one another with criticism and so on. So yeah. I, I think that's an important distinction. Uh, another thing too is 
you know, there are kind of like two levels of offensiveness with words. Like when you talk about, I don't have the power to offend you. I, I know exactly what you're saying, right? And, and at the end of the day, we are responsible for how we process our own thoughts and feelings. And we do have the power to neutralize other people's use of language, even when they do intend to offend us. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the, the black comedian Paul Mooney used to say, I say the N-word a thousand times a day. It makes my teeth white. He took that word. And, and when he lived at a time when people would use it to hurt him, he snatched it away from them and say, I use it more than you. And in a way that makes me and my people laugh, right? And so that is a possibility. At the same time, as an educator, as a mentor, as an uncle, if I'm talking to my white godson, if I'm talking to my, some of my white nieces and nephews, and if I were to hear them say the N-word, I wouldn't cancel them. I wouldn't stop loving them. But I would seek to educate them on the history of that word and the power that it has to affect someone else. And if they were to say to me, hey, look, I ain't got the power to offend other people. Other people are responsible for how they process their feelings and emotions. The first thing I would say is like, man, like for my nephew or niece at your age, for you to be able to say that, first of all, that's profound, so give me a pow. (laughs) However, there's more to the story than that, right? And I would try to educate them on communicating in a way that is least likely to produce offense. But then you bring up the other issue, which is for every slur, for every negative word, like the N-word, like the B-word, there is a demographic of people who reclaim the power of an offensive term and use it internally. You can walk into a group of females and you'll hear ladies say to each other, what's up, B-word? You'll walk into a room full of black dudes and they'll be like, what's up, my N-word? And for that crowd, it's a term of endearment but it's still possible for people outside of that crowd to be offended by the fact that it is used at all, right? Yeah. It's possible for a guy to be like, well, what are these women doing calling each other that word? It's possible for a white person to be like, no, nobody should use the N-word. It's an ugly word, even though people in those demographics use it. And so a big part of discussions like this is, number one, making the distinction between what you intend to convey versus merely judging you on how you sound when you say it, but also asking, Who is the audience here? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Who is the audience? Mm -hmm. Are you speaking as part of a shared community which has a shared understanding? Or are you speaking to a broader world that understands the word in a particular way? And I think that's critical for navigating things like this. And so I understand what you're saying. I I was curious because I hadn't even, I wouldn't have imagined that question, Mm -hmm. you know? And to hear you break down what simpletons means, why you chose it, how much the community loves it and how they chose it. Mm-hmm. It makes a lot of sense. I guess my question for you now is, what happens if the community says, hey, now that we think about it, we prefer minimizers instead. Would you change it then? I would certainly consider it, especially yeah. with our you know, private podcast audience. They're the ones who who voted on it. So yeah. let us know in the comments. We're, we're happy to uh, to take that under advisory yeah. because I'm always listening. Yeah. But just because someone has an opinion about something doesn't mean that it changes what the truth is about the way that it's been used. I, I'm thinking of a really unfortunate example. Um, I grew up with a black brother, and I remember the first time a racial slur was used against him where we grew up. It was a guy who was, I mean, it was it was comically bad. Like, it was a guy in a pickup truck with a Confederate flag, because we grew up close to Kentucky. So Ohio and Kentucky sort of had this weird, there was this weird affinity for 
Confederate flags back in the 80s and 90s uh, in that area. And there was a pickup truck and someone drove by and called him a monkey. And that is, I mean, clearly in that context, the connotation there, racist slur. Mm-hmm. No question about it, right? And it's not its not cool to just be like, no, man, I was joking. You need to lighten up. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think what my brother Jerome would say is like, yeah, he would say the same thing. Like, they don't have the power to offend me. Is the first thing he would say about it. But then also, when I think about the use of that word, like, all the time, we'll refer, Ella's always climbing trees and stuff. Our daughter, our nine-year-old daughter, oh, look at that little monkey. She's climbing the tree. Totally different use of the same exact word. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? They have the same denotation, but the connotation is miles apart. And yeah. so it does matter the way that people are using these words. Are we using it in a loving way? Are we using it in a, a way that is inclusive? Or are we using it in a way that is exclusive? And when we call our audience simpleton, it shows that, hey, we're not taking ourselves seriously. We're all a little foolish. We're all a little gullible. And let's embrace that. And let's mm-hmm. simplify together. I'm not excluding you. I'm including you in all of this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the way, you said you, you know this person who asked this might be offended, but it may be possible that they're not offended. Yes. And, and it may be possible that they're asking this question based on the perception that there might be someone else who is offended. That's a real possibility. That's right. Yeah. yeah. There is a trend right now to try to be offended for other people, sort of. What do you mean? Even if it doesn't offend you personally, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, it could offend this other group of people. And therefore, I'm going to point out that it could be harmful to other people. Yeah. And we should try to minimize that potential harm. And yeah. while I don't necessarily disagree with that, I don't think it's most of our roles to be policing what everyone else could potentially find is offensive. Yeah, from like a business standpoint, you definitely want at least one person like that on your team, right? Because I I have seen some advertisements before (laughs) where I've shaken my head and I've been like, did you not have like one person on the team (laughs) to say maybe we shouldn't do that, right? Um, Although I think sometimes those those are intentional to cause the what, mm. what some might call recreational outrage mm. in order to get Gucci talked about, mm. even though they're being talked about in a negative uh, light or Abercrombie and Fitch or whatever it is, they have yeah. some some tone-deaf T-shirt. It's not intentionally racist or ableist or whatever, but they promote it in a way that makes it appear as though it is. And... You can think of it one of two ways. The charitable way to look at that is, oh, these, these idiots, I can't believe, didn't they have a single person in the boardroom that could help them make a better decision here? Or the uncharitable way is they got in that boardroom and they're like, hey, let's throw up some controversy. What do you think? What do we do? Oh, let's try this. Let's try this. Let's try this. Yeah, that'll get people talking about it. Mm. And you know what? Yes, it'll hurt our bottom line this week, but this quarter... So many more people are going to be talking about us. It's worth it for us to have a little negative publicity. Mm. And I would say neither one of these. I don't want anyone to be offended by this. It is not an ableist slur. And if you're turning it into an ableist slur, then okay. And maybe it is wherever you live. You're using it in a way that is 
uh, simpleton is an ableist slur. I've never even heard that. I've heard one other about once a quarter, someone will mention something that, hey, this, you know, this means foolish person, right? I'm like, yeah, I, I know that's what it means. It's not a slur. It just means foolish person. Like, yes. Uh, and we, we thought it was more clever, simpleton, than just calling our audience fools, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, fools. Um, or hey, gullibles. Like, it, it just, it's a fun way to acknowledge our, to be sincere with our levity, to be both sincere and not take ourselves seriously. Mm. Oh. The group also, like you said, they bought in, like this is what they chose, the label that the group of patrons chose mm-hmm. overwhelmingly. Yes. And, you know, and there's even a woman who's often on the live stream, shout out if you're here, my, my dear, um, but she made a shirt that says simpletons mm. with the heart from love people use things. Like, yes. So it's like there are, there's a, most of the people within this community understand that it's a heartfelt um, term of endearment, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, we don't take ourselves seriously. <laughs> this reminds Let me, me say one thing real quick. I, here's, here's the truth. If you're looking for something to be upset by, if you're looking for something to be upset by, you will find it. Mm-hmm. You'll find it somewhere. You'll find it with the person across the street. You'll find it with your spouse, with your lover, your best friend, your business partner, your coworker. If you need to be upset, you'll find a million different reasons to be upset. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that are upsetting in the world, but if you go chasing discontent, you are guaranteed to find it in spades. Yeah, and I'll I'll attach one thing to it and we can move on from this. To the questioner, your question is understood. It makes sense that the word has a negative usage that's not debated here. The word is being used in this community in a positive, frivolous way, and the word has arisen out of a shared understanding in the community as it was chosen by the people in the community who voted for it. So it's a fair question, and I think it's a fair answer. And I think it's fair to talk about something else. TK the moderator. (laughs) (laughs) Our next question is from Jen on Twitter. Is it possible to own more things than your husband and still be a minimalist? No, I'm withholding Bex's certificate. She has to get rid of 43 more things. (laughs) And then she'll officially be a minimalist. (laughs) It's true. I do own more things than Josh. Although he definitely has more jackets. <laughs> See that that's the example. How many does he have? I don't know. <laughs> I don't count them. And that that's great. Yeah. But it is it is easy and and the heart of this question is often I see the other person's faults yeah. or flaws and therefore they aren't living up to my expectation, right? And so I don't have an expectation of Bex that she should own fewer things than me. Yes, I own the fewest amount of things overall in our house. Our daughter Ella has the most things. Bex is, takes the silver medal. I feel like <laughs> I am in third. I don't. I think Ella has the second place locked in. Because <laughs> I have all the kitchen shit. And Sorry. <laughs> Can I swear? <laughs> now we're going to have to talk about that word Bleep next it episode. Out. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you know, I have all the kitchen stuff, which, yeah, it doesn't belong to me, but I'm the one that primarily uses it. I have all the camping gear, right? Like I've got two areas of 
of more items than than either you or Ella has. We're actually saving up money right now to get a shed in our backyard. In the meantime, we have a storage locker. Mm-hmm. Well, I say we. Bex has a storage locker that I pay for. <laughs> and so we have a storage locker to keep Bex's camping gear in, basically, because I don't want it randomly strewn throughout the house somewhere. We don't have a garage. We don't have an extra space for it right now. And so to get it out of the way, we have a temporary storage unit. Uh, it's funny. We were there the other day to pick up a uh, a surfboard thing. Or what, boogie a, board. Boogie board. Yeah. yeah. Ella's boogie board which we keep in there as well. And I, I was there and this woman recognized me. She's like, hey, you're one of the minimalist guys. At the storage unit. Like, it's not mine, I swear. <laughs> it's her stuff. She's the fake minimalist. And, <laughs> and that really becomes the problem. When we become so legalistic about this, that it, you know, I have a friend, uh, Dave, Dave Bruno, who wrote a book called The 100 Thing Challenge. This is way back in like 2010, 2009, somewhere around there. And it was about living with a hundred things for a year, but it was not a prescription. It was about understanding that you can live with less. The number itself, which he acknowledges in the book, is arbitrary. It was about understanding, like, oh, wow, if the average American household has 300,000 items in it, maybe I can live with a hundred. And what does that mean? Is that deprivation? Well, I don't know. And I think with each person, it's a little bit different. With Bex, she owns what she needs to own and is constantly asking questions. And we're asking these questions together. And quite often, we can do this in a passive-aggressive way that seems accusatory. Hey, you really want to keep this? As opposed to getting curious about it. Hey, Bex, you still using this? And in a way that is genuine. It's not, hey, I think you should get rid of this. But we're holding each other accountable in a way that is loving, Mm -hmm. not blaming or accusing the other person for owning too much stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just the other day, um, I so I'm taking on a new hobby. I'm gonna bake with sourdough. Oh! And I have wanted to do. I've wanted to have a sourdough starter and to bake with sourdough for over a decade. I've wanted to do it forever. And I'm finally like making it happen. And I bought like this um, beautiful ceramic bread maker thing that you put in the oven. And it arrived the other day. And I was like, huh, where's this going to be? And I looked up on the shelf. And the way that we have things is generally when one thing comes in, generally one thing goes out. Yeah. And so I found a, a little bowl on the shelf. And I was like, hey, Josh, are, are we using this? Are we planning on using this? Do we, do we still want this around? Not in a passive-aggressive way, in a loving, kind, thoughtful way. And he's like, gives me a funny look for a couple of seconds. He's like, no, we're good. And the reason I gave you the funny look is my knee-jerk reaction as a human being with a hoarding tendency (laughs) is to say, yes, yes, of course we need that. Now, generally, before we bring something in the home, we both agree that it's going to come into the home. And occasionally, we'll bypass that for logistical reasons. But by and large, to avoid the excess, to avoid the other person's expectations, right, we'll ask questions where it's, hey, or is it okay if we get this thing? Or what do you think about this? Oh, you know what? I think aesthetically this would be better. And here's why, mm. right? The other day she was talking about getting a bird feeder uh, for all the hummingbirds that we have near our house that the cats like to eat. <laughs> the stray cats, <laughs> so they, they'll sad. jump up on the bird feeders. <laughs> and, uh, our next door neighbor caught one with it in his mouth. The other day, on oh, the no. bird feeder, just oh, a, a hummingbird in his mouth. 
Uh, we have all these stray cats because our lot where we were, it was this, it was abandoned for a while. And so like, I guess all the cats just used the yard as a, as a dumping ground, literally. And, so y'all going to adopt all the cats? Uh, well, Ella wants to. No, I'm, I'm buying a slingshot. <laughs> an aesthetically pleasing slingshot. He's just going to sit on the back porch and like launch little pebbles at the, at the Min- Minimalist design. <laughs> anyway, she shows me a, a bird feeder at a, at a neighbor's house and she's like, hey, can we get something like that for the hummingbirds? And I look at it, I'm like, no, absolutely not. And she's like, what if we get one that's more aesthetically pleasing? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and, and, and because they, the neighbors several, three or four blocks down had a really ugly bird feeder. And aesthetics are not the most important thing to me, but they are really important. Uh, it's the reason that flowers are beautiful is you know, it's part of nature. Nature is really beautiful, right? And so I don't want to interrupt the beauty of our home with something that is aesthetically displeasing. And so what is this about? What are we talking about? We're really talking about having conversations via questions. When you ask me, hey, are we going to keep using this bowl? What I am going through in my head, instead of saying yes, I went to the 90-90 rule, which is in the minimalist rule book, the minimalists.com slash rule book, 90-90 rule. We also call it the seasonality rule. Have I used that in the last 90 days? No? Okay. Am I going to use it in the next 90 days? Hmm. I'm thinking on this. Like, let let me don't have... I'm not going to say yes, because it's easy to say yes to that question. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely use it. That's dismissive. Let me not dismiss this question. Let me be honest with yourself, with you, Bex. Let me also be honest with myself. Because if I'm being honest with myself, no, probably not going to use it in the next 90 days. Let's let go of it together. Hmm. Man, that's so good. You know, um, harmoniously coexisting with someone who's not as minimalist or anything else as you, you know, in, in a certain way, it's kind of simple. When it comes to your stuff, you can be minimalist about it and decide to get rid of anything that you don't truly need or want. When it comes to his stuff, you can accept that he is doing the best that he can do to live only with what he needs. Now, I know that's going to sound Highly controversial. Y'all going to tear me up in the comments for this, but just hear me out, okay? Hear me out. It's very easy to impose our sense of necessity onto other people and to say, I believe that we can live without this thing. Therefore, you can live without this thing. And because you are not choosing to live without this thing, you're not doing what you ought to do. And when it comes to our relationship to things, it's never about the thing. It's always about the story that we're telling ourselves about the thing, which means that my story about something is different from your story and it's different from your story. And we might all have the same thing, but we're hooked up to it in entirely different ways. And maybe your husband has a basketball or a hockey stick and a hockey puck or a baseball bat sitting in the garage. And it's been there for 10 years and you know he doesn't use it and you know it's taken up space and you know that he should just get rid of it but what is he getting rid of if you were to throw that out? Maybe there's a dream that he hasn't come to grips with. Maybe having that baseball bat, having that basketball that he never uses represents for him the possibility of what he could have been, the possibility of what he still wants to get around to. And if you take it and throw it away in the name of pragmatism, 
you might be throwing away something that helps him hold himself together psychologically Mm. in a way you know nothing about. And this is why curiosity is so powerful because you look at that basketball sitting in the garage that he never uses. You look at those tools that he never uses. You can say, instead of, are you ever going to use these things? You can say, hey, what made you buy that? Mm. And he's going to tell you a story. You know, I was in the store, you know, when I used to grow up with my dad, he used to always build stuff. And I used to want to do this and that with my tools. And I've always dreamt of doing this. Yeah, like if you could do whatever you wanted with it, if you had as much time as you needed, what would you do with it? And get to know that story. Because you never want to throw an, away another person's things until you know what you're throwing away with it. There's mm-hmm. always a story you're throwing away with it. And people can't let go of their things until they let go of the stories that they're telling about them. So instead of trying to get him to be more minimalist about the stuff, I would encourage you to get more curious about his story behind his stuff. And that's going to bring you guys together in a way that will help you support him and maybe ultimately guide him down the path to letting go of some things that he needs to let go or reviving some things that he needs to bring back alive. Mm. That's beautiful. Alabama, I'm going to skip Anastasia's question just for the sake of time. Let's save that for the next episode. You know what time it is? It's time for the lightning round. Yes, indeed. That's where we <laughs> answer your text messages. You can text your questions, 937-202-4654. You can whatever question you want. Those questions go right to my phone, to Ryan's phone. We answer folks directly. We also answer some questions here on the podcast. Now, you all probably know this. During the lightning round, this is where we answer questions with a short, shareable, less than 140 character response. We call them minimal maxims. We put them in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. Today's lightning round question is from Emily. My four-year-old is comfortable with letting go and practicing gratitude, but outside influences like preschool classmates leave her wanting more. How can we demonstrate the benefits of wanting less to young children? So I was thinking about this with respect to Ella, Bex. The thing you want is never the thing you want. Now, we were talking about that a moment ago on the private podcast. It's always the idea, the dream behind the thing, the belief behind the thing, right? And so with Ella, getting her to understand the stories that she tells herself about the things that she might want, that is so, so powerful. Mm-hmm. Because Ella isn't holding on to the things when she's holding on to something. She's holding on to the story about that thing. The robot that she has, you know, she has this little remote control robot that she barely ever played with. But she told herself some story that it might be fun in some ideal future. We found out the biggest problem with that was she couldn't read the instruction manual very well. And she had a friend, a slightly older friend come over who read the instruction manual to her. And all of a sudden, it opened up this whole world of possibility. So if I had told her, hey, you need to let go of this robot, I would have simply just been making a prescription, a command, a demand on her. And I would have been eliminating all of the critical thinking, which is exactly what our education system does right now as well. There's a reason Bex and I took Ella out of public school recently, and we're unschooling her. You've been reading a book, which we'll talk about during our added value segment. It's called Weapons of Mass Instruction. And it's really about how we have 
ruined critical thinking within our children. And so how does that apply to Emily's question? My four-year-old is comfortable with letting go and practicing gratitude, but outside influences like preschool classmates, schoolmates in general, right? They uh, leave her wanting more. And so what you're saying is the cultural influences are disrupting or interrupting her natural tendency, her willingness to let go. When the Buddhists talk about nirvana, they talk about breathing out, the letting go. Nirvana is just a perpetual letting go, a state of being comfortable with letting go. Mm. And kids are comfortable with letting go all the time because they're not clinging to the past. They're not clinging to a hypothetical future until we beat that into them. Mm. Bex, have you ever had a moment where that was like difficult for you, where you saw her wanting something and you knew it was the result of outside influence. You know it wasn't like authentic desire. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I try to walk this line with her where we'll, we'll acknowledge the desire and try to talk about where it's coming from um, and also helping her see how, you know, maybe her friend is, you know, placing a her desire to be close with her friend is, is placing a greater influence on her than her desire for something else. But um, one, it's, it's not directly related to this, but one of the things that came to mind when we were first talking about this question um, was Ella has this fascinating interest in makeup. And I generally don't wear makeup every now and then. Like today, I'll... I'll put a little on and <laughs> try my best to look good on a camera. But um, yeah, it it's not my baseline. I, I don't have an arsenal of makeup at home. It's not a, a routine that we have. Um, but she's very, very interested in makeup. And for, for several years now, she, she regularly will ask for more makeup. And a couple of years back, I finally sat down with her and talked with her more about this interest. And turns out she had made this really interesting um, association between her time that she got to spend with um, basically a, a stepmom type figure who she was really close with. They, they had a beautiful relationship um, and makeup. She had a lot of makeup. She would put it on, you know, with a routine every day or when they were going, you know, she and uh, Ella's dad were going out for dates, things like that. And so Ella got to know um, this woman named Stephanie um, and her association with makeup in sort of a loving, caregiving type of way. And also as an art form. It's not how I use it at all. And um, so it was able. I was able to understand better where her interest in that was coming from. And that's a little different than, you know, uh, preschool classmates. Um, but it, it, it's kind of the same, right? Like it's sometimes our stuff is a way of relating to other people and, and developing social bonds. And so I think that sometimes, especially with little kids, it's, it's talking about stuff or, or bringing in their, you know, their stuffed animals or their, you know, favorite toys or whatever is a way of, of helping them bond with each other. So it's not so much that they have 
you know, X number of items. It's more like they have these couple things that are really important to them. And instead of moralizing those things, hey, too much makeup is bad or wrong. Mm-hmm. We're not doing that, but it's asking questions and also helping her get really practical yeah. around some of these things. Because understanding that having you know, 100 types of makeup all around, most of it is never getting used and it becomes wasted. Yeah. But if she has fewer things that she wants to play around with when she plays dress up or whatever, then she can go to those things that are her favorite things. Mm-hmm. But if you have a thousand things, it's impossible to have a thousand favorite things because they become watered down with excess. Yeah. PK, you had something pithy here that you wrote down. I thought this was this was worth talking about. Yeah. Um, can I just quickly comment on what Bex just said? Please do. Okay. I what I love most about your your story there is how much you learned about Ella. Mm-hmm. You you learn something about the connection that she feels to Stephanie and mm-hmm. how much she looks up to her. Mm-hmm. And you learn something about her appreciation of the creative process, right? She's drawn to it, not because she thinks it makes her look beautiful. She's drawn to it because she likes the intricacy of it and the the art of it. And that's a cool thing to appreciate. And how many other applications might that have? And you're in a better position to be able to connect with her, to be able to anticipate her needs and her influences just because you were able to listen non-judgmentally. So I, I really love that. And, and, and that does lead me to my, my pithy thought, uh, which is when you're free from pleasing all the people, you're free from needing all the things. Mm. There are always going to be people out there who possess things that we don't have, who attribute status and praise to those who have those things. And as long as you're attached to that stuff, you'll need all the stuff that brings it. But we have to liberate ourselves from needing to be a status holding person in other people's eyes. And how do we do that? I don't think you can make your child want less things. I don't think you can make your child stop liking what they like. I think all you can do is help them learn how to process their feelings, help them learn how to intimately connect with the story of why behind the desire. And that's one of the greatest gifts that you can give a human being because that's going to help them with the psychological declutter that will precede the physical declutter. You know, I, I imagine, I think about my, my nephews who are pretty young right now, where I imagine if I had a son and, you know, fell in love with some girl at school that didn't like him back. And he came home to me and was like, I like this girl and I don't like her. That's a struggle because my son likes someone. Mm. He's attracted to someone. He feels desire for someone and they don't feel the same way. And we so long to protect our children from the reality of scarcity the reality of you can't have yes. everything that you want or every everyone that you love isn't going to love you back or feel the same way. And sometimes all you can do is simply be with them and help help them process. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You really like that girl, huh? What you like about her? Mm. <laughs> That's okay to talk about, right? It's not going to hurt. What do you like about her? Well, because the opposite more. is also true. If you want your kid to become a maximalist, simply disallow material possessions in your home. And it's going to make those things so much more enticing. Our friend Rob Bell, a former pastor, he says, hey, if you want to get your kids to read the Bible, just don't permit it in the house. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) And I think the same is true with our material possessions. If you want a kid to be a hoarder, discourage things. Tell them things are bad or wrong, that their desires are bad. Because 
that's going to draw them closer to those material things. As soon as something becomes taboo, what do we do? We want to explore it. We want more of it. It becomes a a sort of kink in a way. We talk a lot on how to love about different kinks and to avoid kink shaming. But as uh, former podcast guest Dan Savage talks about, you actually want a little bit of shame in the kink because that's the thing that makes the thing that adds the tension. It makes it exciting. And so there's something about our stuff, the tension that we have with our stuff or the tension we have with our kids as well, that creates a dynamic through which we grow. It creates a little discomfort in our relationships as well. Because if you have three, four, five, six people in a household, mm-hmm. or as a previous caller had you know, eight people in the household, right? Well, then there's going to always be some bit of tension. The, the key is that you might not always be on the same page, but you want to be reading from the same book. We got a bunch more segments to uh, talk about. Seven different simple living segments coming up. But first, Malabama, what do you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hey guys, so my name is Sam, and uh, I just wanted to share my favorite minimalism tip, which involves uh, Ryder Carroll's bullet journal method which is kind of a way of journaling that incorporates an agenda with a to-do list with uh, just like a regular journal that you would keep day to day. And it's been great because it's actually kind of allowed me to declutter my space a lot more. I've gotten rid of a lot of sticky notes that I used to keep everywhere with reminders all the time. Um, I used to have different books where I'd keep track of, for example, my schedule for the day. and, and, And that's all now in one place, which has been great. But um, another thing is that I've kind of modified the method as well to kind of suit my own lifestyle a little bit more. And so now every day I make a page in my journal where I keep track of, firstly, you know, my appointments, my to-do list, my schedule for the day. But I also have a section in there for um, keeping track of what my favorite part of the day was, my mood throughout the day. And there's also a section in there for notes. And that is where I write down kind of everything I've done that day and just kind of quick like bullet point form. I also might put in a few pictures if I, you know, felt so inclined. So it's kind of like evolved to merge with a scrapbook almost. And doing that has had kind of an unexpected side effect of I feel less inclined to hang on to sentimental items. Um, Because honestly, like at the beginning of every year, I've just started doing a page where I put all the pictures of my highlights from the previous year. And So doing that, that allows me to get rid of a lot of things that I was holding on to that I didn't really want to hold on to, but I kind of was hung up about getting rid of it. Um, Nowadays, I just can, you know, flip back through my bullet journal pages and I can see all of these beautiful, you know, memories that I had. And I I don't really have to associate those memories with objects anymore necessarily. Um, And a great thing about that as well is that... uh, if I run into an item that I want to get rid of and, you know, I don't want to hold on to it anymore, but I'm hung up about getting rid of it because it's sentimental and I feel like I, I should keep it out of some kind of obligation. Um, honestly, I just take a picture of it and stick it in the journal. And for me, that seems to do the trick where I just kind of like the switch flips in my brain and it's like the part of my brain that wanted to hang on to it is satisfied. So I might stick it in my journal and then maybe write down a couple of bullet points about, you know, the memories I had that are associated with the object and all of that. And 
It's been great because when I flip back through my journals to kind of reference maybe a recipe that I liked a few years ago or maybe the notes that I had on a project I worked on, um, I'm able to kind of flip past and see all of these pictures and, you know, notes on all these objects as well. So I'm actually kind of appreciating them more now that they're gone. Hi, my name is Stephanie. I am from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And I wanted to just um, share a tool that has really been added value to my life as somebody who is going through grad school wanting to do a PhD and does need to kind of refer back to those uh, those items and those notes. Uh, Evernote is really great because you can actually scan, scanning party, uh, scan all your items and chapters from books, uh, you know, journal articles, your notes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you can import them into Evernote and you can actually tag them and uh, you can collaborate and share your, your notebooks with uh, colleagues and stuff. And what this does is, like, if you want to go back in time and review kind of, uh, like, something, you know, that you need to reference, you can go right to your tags and all your items that are under that particular category will show up. And it can show all your notes. You can add to it. You can collaborate. It's just a fantastic tool if you want to move from keeping all those books and keeping all those references, those reference sheets, those loose papers to a digital form. It's added a lot of value to my life and I'm just sharing it with everybody else. Welcome back to the Minimalist Private Podcast. Before we get into our other Simple Living segments, by the way, I'm here with Rebecca Shern, my beautiful wife. We're here with T.K. Coleman. His other beautiful wife. <laughs> <laughs> hey, when I said I wanted a threesome, I wasn't talking about this. <laughs> I've seen this video. How to bungle. <laughs> <laughs> Again. I guess that's for another episode of, of How to Love. <laughs> Bex's podcast is called How to Love, by the way. You can check out the free version wherever you listen to podcasts or if you're a patron, go ahead and give it a month. Uh, Patreon.com slash how to love. We dive deep into unconventional relationships, unconventional thoughts about parenting, unconventional thoughts about wellness, and of course, just overall relationships. You can dive into that. Howtolove.show. You can find the links over there. Let's start with some more about less. So, I'm calling an audible here because I have this article. I'm just going to put a link to this article in the show notes. You can read it if you want. It's about Canadians. This is from the Globe and Mail. My least favorite paper in the world is the Globe and Mail, but I have a personal vendetta against them. Have I told you this story? No. Oh. So they, uh, they wrote an op-ed about the minimalists. I think this is back in 2012, maybe. It was a long time ago. And it essentially said, Oh, the minimalists are just two privileged guys. Okay, which is fine. You can call me privileged. I don't care about that. Um, you don't know anything about my history or background, whatever. Who Two privileged guys who left their wives and moved to Montana, to a, moved to a cabin in Montana together. <clears throat> and I'm like, these are facts, but when you piece them together without any context, it sounds insane, right? Like, uh, it sounded a bit like the Unabomber or something, the way they depicted us. Um, well, like a really I, interesting love story. I think, yeah, I was going to say, I think it sounds really romantic. Yeah. yeah. It does. Yeah, it's yeah. very Brokeback Mountain-esque. Yes. Yeah. This is what my mom was trying to do. My mom always wanted me and Ryan to get married. Um, but I <laughs> Wait, was what? explaining. Yeah, she always like she she was hoping there was some sort of romance there, and I assured her it was only a bromance. 
article. Anyway, this article is called <laughs> The Great Junk Transfer is Coming. A look at the burden and big business of decluttering as Canadians inherit piles of their parents' stuff. And it's interesting. I'll just read one line here and then there's something else I want to read as our more about less segment. Five years ago, this woman named Deb, co-owner of Calgary Franchise of Just Junk, estimates that she'd get a call once a month from adult children looking to help clean out their parents' home. Now she picks up a new job roughly every week. About one quarter of the families tell her, we don't want any of the stuff. Take Mm. it all. Mm. And so I wanted to bring this up, and you can read it. It's like 20 pages of reading. They have a bunch of really heartfelt stories in there. But and a bunch of pictures of the stuff as well. And what we realized, this is a quote from a few weeks ago where when I talked about TK, one man's junk is also another man's junk. <laughs> it's not one man's junk is another man's treasure. That's true sometimes. Yeah, rarely. But by and large, and I noticed this when Bex and I were walking by this convenience store, this consignment shop close to our favorite grocery store downtown where we live. And it was just filled with junk. It was other people's junk and they were trying to get rid of, they were trying to sell the junk, which all the irony here. And now what we're learning is like people can't even give away a lot of the junk. And does that mean that there's nothing valuable in here? No. What it means is the junk is watering down that which is valuable. Mm. Anyway, I'm not going to spend a whole bunch of time on that. We'll put a link to this article in the show notes because Bex has been reading this book. We went to the library a week or so ago and she has been devouring this book. And TK, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this because I think you share similar sentiments. So the book is called Weapons of Mass Instruction. And Bex, will you tell me why you were so intrigued by the book? Uh, I had heard someone talking tangentially about the book. I don't remember when or where. I didn't even know the author's name, but like I vaguely, I I read it on the shelf. Like I saw the title. I was like, oh, I feel like I've heard about that book. So I picked it up and just the first couple like sentences, like we always do. Mm -hmm. um, I read them. I was like, yep, this is a book for me, especially now uh, as we're transitioning to unschooling Ella Mm -hmm. and um, had had such a, a rocky go of it with the traditional school system. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I can't read it at night because it makes me angry, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a great daytime read. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, I think it, it is, it was by a former public school teacher. Uh, he taught in New York, I think for th- either 20 or 30 years, his last year on the job, his name is John Taylor Gatto is the author. Mm-hmm. Um, the, his last year on the job, he was nominated or he won the teacher, the New York State Teacher of the Year or something like that. So he's a acclaimed teacher, um, but he he burned himself out basically um, and just realized he he couldn't be part of this system anymore. Um, and it's it's a fantastic read. The it illustrates the major problems with the conventional schooling system. Here is a quick excerpt from the book. This is from page 136. When, as it happens with some frequency, I'm asked by parents for a single suggestion for changing the relationship between them and their kids for the better, I don't hesitate to recommend this. Don't think of them as kids. Childhood exists, 
but it's over long before we allow it to be. I'd start to worry if my kids were noticeably childish past the age of seven. And if by 12, you aren't dealing with young men and women anxious to take their turns, disgusted with training wheels on anything, able to walk about London, do 100-mile bike trips, and add enough value to the neighborhood that they have an independent income. If you don't see this, you're doing something seriously wrong. Even at seven, don't edit the truth out of things. Oh. Mm-hmm. We see this all the time, right? Don't edit the truth out of things. If the family has an income, kids need to know to the penny what it is and how it's spent. Assume they are human beings with the same basic nature and aptitudes that you have. What you have superior in terms of experience and mature understanding should be exchanged for their natural resilience, quick intelligence, imagination, fresh insight and eagerness to become self-directing. Don't buy into the calculated don't buy into the calculated illusion of extended childhood. It's a great secret to power. Power for your kids if you turn the tables on their handlers. And adolescence is a total fraud, a pure concoction of social engineers barely a century old. It's a paradox, constantly threatening to solve itself as the young beat against the school jail in which we've confined them. Sometimes, as I read obituaries, far and away the most valuable department in any good newspaper. Oh, (laughs) isn't that true? When I read obituaries, I stumble across a new piece of evidence that I've uh, uh, that what I've told you is true. And he goes on to give some examples here of people who were successful despite the fact, or maybe because of the fact that they circumvented the conventional education system. Mm -hmm. TK, I'd love to get some thoughts from you about the conventional education system. You work with a lot of kids through your relationship with FEE. You're a director of education at FEE. And I'm sure you see a lot of these hurdles that are being placed in front of kids. Absolutely. You know, One thing I've learned by working in alternative education for like the past decade is to be very careful and meticulous about how the discussion gets framed Mm. because there are two sides to this same coin. One, there are problems with the conventional system. And two, there are possibilities of the alternative. And conversations about possibilities for alternative education often get sort of um, drowned out by defensive arguments made on behalf of problems that are stated in the conventional system. So if you say, here's a problem that I have with the conventional system, get ready, because that's going to be the conversation all day long, because there is somebody for whom that system is working. Mm. There are Mm -hmm. are some good teachers out there that Mm -hmm. are passionate and working hard for that system doing good things. There are more innovative schools with less bureaucracy that are doing interesting things within the conventional system. And so it ends up being this back and forth about well, does the conventional system work? Does it not work? And I like to shift the discussion altogether to what are the possibilities for education when we think about learning as something that can happen in schools, but is not limited to schools? Mm. Because for the overwhelming majority of human history, and this is what John Taylor uh, Gatto points out in his underground education of history, underground education of, of history of schooling, is that for the overwhelming majority of human history, we didn't learn in the way that we learn at conventional schooling. And so without taking a shot at conventional schooling, 
What can we learn from the very best of what has already been demonstrated throughout human history when people had to get along and had to raise their children outside of the factory model, the industrial age model of putting people in a classroom, segregating them by age, and <clears throat> teaching them subjects that were determined not by people who live with them, but by bureaucrats who define for them what it means to be a good citizen. What becomes possible when we think not necessarily against, but beyond that model? And that's the question that I'm interested in. And I think there are a lot of cool things that are being done in charter schooling, in unschooling communities, homeschooling communities. One of the coolest things is that Maybe about 10, 15 years ago, everyone saw homeschooling as the parent taking upon the burden of being all things to the student. And so whenever discussions came up, parents would object, well, I'm not qualified to teach history and math and English. And what more and more people are realizing is that homeschooling isn't about you, the parent, pretending to be the expert on all the subjects. It's about you learning how to determine what the priorities of your child's education will be and you facilitating the experiences that involve them engaging the experts and the people that will help them be the child you want them to be. And so now we see homeschooling communities where it's more easy than ever, not easy, but easier than ever mm -hmm. before to raise your child outside of the alternative system. And there are a lot of cool things happening there that I'm a big advocate for and we can unpack anything if you want. I think that's great. I want to move on to our talk aboutable segment. Uh -oh. We've got a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> so first off, a reminder to our patrons. Big thanks for your support here. So just a reminder about the new format. Every Monday, the maximal episode comes out. We record one giant two to three hour maximal episode every week. That shows up in your RSS feed or you can listen to it on the Patreon app. Or if you need instructions, you can find that over on our Patreon page, but feel free to explore the archives over there as well. We have hundreds of hours of archives. If you want to dive deep into the vintage version of the Minimalist <laughs> podcast, we got a bunch of stuff over there, right? We, we've got the quarantine conversations we recorded during mm. the, well, well, during the beginning of the pandemic, Ryan and I just started having phone calls with friends. We, TK was one of them. Uh, Bex was one of the quarantine conversations. Mahalik, uh, Professor Sean over here was another quarantine conversation. And so we, we just had 50 different phone call conversations with, with friends, loved ones, other people that we were inspired how they were dealing with the quarantine. Everyone from Dan Savage to Dave Ramsey all appeared on the private podcast on the quarantine conversations. Those are available to all of our Patreon supporters. You can dive deep into those archives. Also, we have 50 different sessions of Ask the Minimalist Anything. You can dive deep into those as well. So there's plenty out there. You don't have to wait for every Monday, but we move to Mondays because we want to start your week off with a bit of simplicity. And so you can also dive into the home tours. If you just go to the minimalist, so you go to patreon.com slash the minimalists, and then you look at all of the tags there. You'll see, of course, the audio version of the podcast, the video version of the podcast, if you subscribe to the video version. But then you'll also see home tours that we have on there. Every week, we're putting out a new picture. In fact, we're going to review one of Bex's in my kitchen today. It is called Fairy Princess Dinosaur, I believe is the title of this photo. And it's uh, it's one of my favorites. So we, uh, But we send you every Friday, we send you a just a, a photo tour of one of our homes. So you can dive into the archives on that as well. What else do we have over there? Oh, I did a whole series, uh, a podcast called Minimalism Today. I did, it's a five-part 
personal audio podcast of me just talking to different people who had questions, other seekers who were struggling with different aspects of minimalism, a little solo podcast you can find out there. Five episodes of that. They're real short, like 12 minutes each. And then uh, we did something called Relationship with Less. TK joined me for one of these. It was over on uh, Clubhouse. And it was right when our book, Love People Use Things, came out. And so I wanted to do, because we weren't touring yet, I wanted to do some conversations with folks. We did these and, and Jordan captured them for us so we could put them up as audio podcasts just for our Patreon subscribers. So if you're at that level, you can check those out as well. But I would encourage you to explore, whether you're using the Patreon app on your phone or you just go to your computer, go to patreon.com slash the minimalists. It's really easy to navigate. They make it super simple. You can listen to all these audio podcasts on your favorite RSS player, your podcatchers, they call it. So it could be Acast or Feedly or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, as long as they accept RSS feeds. Unfortunately, Spotify doesn't. It's a walled garden system. But every other player allows you to play a RSS feed. And you get your own personal RSS feed. So you can play these episodes every week. We're also now to improve the listener experience. We've been uploading the videos to Patreon directly instead of doing a YouTube link that improves our video quality. And uh, it also allows us to play music in the podcast as well. I want to play a song real quick. Bex and I were driving down here this morning and uh, we were listening to Sigaros and they were, it was beautiful. The sun was, we saw three sunrises this morning on our drive. Now it was the same sun, I believe. That's the, that's the running hypothesis. <laughs> yes. We were driving. We were in Ventura County coming down the 101. And just this, this stunning sunrise was coming up over the Santa Monica Mountains there. And then we drove around the mountain. And another sunrise hit us again. And we transitioned. We were listening to Alan Watts at that point in time. We were listening to, and had this music in the background. And Bex is like just infatuated the way he's speaking and sort of meandering through the conversation that he's having with this audience. And by the time we saw the third sunrise, we were listening to an album from one of our mutually favorite musicians. His name's St. John. And it's weird because it's sort of music about hedonism. But the way that I look at it is it is almost as though he's, and I don't know, maybe this is my, just my charitable understanding of it, but it's like he's critiquing hedonism in a way. This song is called All I Want Is A Yacht. I can't be nobody else here. I want them bad bitches to myself cause I'm selfish. Little nigga girl I know you felt it. Young get all and each other to tell you I'm for real bitch. Ain't no effects. We come for the checks. We starving the wrecks. We trapping the jacks. We sleeping the jets. We really the best. We pull up and flex. We speaking baguettes. With niggas in tats and bitches in tax. We came from the bottom. We never forget. That's to a coward, I never allow it. Them niggas are jealous, the niggas are sour. They watching the globe, they wanting the power. Aim at your head, I send you the flowers. I stand on the couch, I piss on the towers. Sleep in the pools, I fuck in the showers. For all of the days, it didn't allow us. Hey, hey, hey. Ain't no effects, we come for the checks. We stir in the wrecks, we sleep in the jacks. We jump on the jets, my niggas is next. Hey, 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 hey. Fuck on the best, my niggas are next. Put on their necks, pin on respect. My nigga, we blessed. Hey, 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 hey. You after the best, I'm here in the flesh. The key to success, you look in the press. You did it to death, you shoot it to the head. I 
shoot it to Jesse, yeah. Hey. Driving a ghost, my dad was a ghost. The bitch on the side, she don't got a ghost. The moment is close, just watch the approach. Hey, 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 hey. Mama, I'm dope, my niggas is dope. They mention my name, I give them a quote. She gave you a heart, she gave me a throat. My credit is great, all I want is a yacht It's a top In the coop <laughs> Alright, let's <laughs> Let's start there So Bex and I do this segment on how to love It's called Terrible Love Where we, we break down a song We take a really amazing song Like that, and then we try to like find Terrible love advice in it Right? <laughs> but I would say you know, This is like terrible consumerism In a way, and so part of me is like the the hedonist like i understand like this guy has everything he, could, he he is very attractive he's famous he's rich but then he still wants more it's the disease of more in a way mm-hmm. because i have it all but all i want is a yacht <laughs> and it's like well, and and, and then i see top. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and i see bex in the car next to me she's going wild she's like that girl in the in one of the memes on on Instagram where uh, her head's about to swivel off of her body. And uh, there's just a pure joy there. And all I really want is not the yacht. I want the joy that I think the yacht is going to bring me. We were talking to a caller earlier about, hey, the thing you want is never the thing you want. You want happiness. You want joy. You want that ecstatic feeling, right? That you think the yacht is going to get you. Or you think the relationship is going to get you. And so there's nothing wrong with those things. There's even nothing inherently immoral about a yacht. But here's what I'm thinking when I hear that. All I want is a burden. Because a yacht sounds like the biggest burden. Financially, time-wise. All the things we think we want, we actually end up wanting burdens in our lives. And then we're just like, how do I get rid of this thing? It is, it's driving me crazy. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think if you consider this song with respect to the sunrise piece, it's like, wait a second, this doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah. But it was the third sunrise. So we were like, <laughs> we were going by that time. Um, we got a long drive on the way in here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, the yacht thing is funny because like, um, I grew up on a river in the Midwest and we spent a ton of time on the water in boats. And so I learned how to drive boats from a very young age. And strangely enough, like on Instagram, I've discovered that it there's a, like a whole genre of Instagram videos where the, the people are basically wrecking the boats they're driving because <laughs> they don't know how to drive them. And this is a, a thing that happens with people who get yachts and don't know how to drive them yeah and so yeah it's a random genre that i've found that i really like is watching people uh usually drunk people um maroon their boats they're very expensive (laughs) boats (laughs) it's almost a metaphor for consumerism in another way here right because we get the thing that we thought we wanted and we end up crashing because we get it yeah i have a friend we sink the boat yes (laughs) yeah I have a friend who really wanted a, this job that he absolutely had to have and coveted it and finally got it and it made him miserable. Yeah. He wanted a Rolex. He bought it eventually. Well, he sort of bought it. He put it on credit, right? But he acquired it. And when he bought it, what happened? He never wore it because he was scared of wearing it. Mm. 
Mm. He was scared of several things. What if someone steals it? What if it gets damaged? Also, though, what are people going to think about me? Are they going to think that I only care about things? Because, man, wait a minute. Maybe I only care about things. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because neither having nor failing to have the Rolex or the yacht will make you happy. Mm-hmm. Because in both the presence and absence of things, you can still be devoid of a connection to the one thing that matters most, yourself, mm. right? Um, and so we can be empty even when our spaces are filled or our spaces are empty. Um, you know, um, it, it was interesting, uh, you were talking about, <laughs> you were talking about this yacht and uh, this bad advice stuff. You know, it, um, it shines a light on envy because... It could be so easy to look at other people who have things that we think we'd be happy with. And we don't know the other part of the story that you just shared about your friend who had all those things. Like, we don't know the prices that those people pay, the sacrifices they made. And, and I've heard Jeff Goins talk about this. When you, when you think about what you love, don't just think about the end result, but think about the process. Like, okay, you want to be an actor, but do you, do you want to be a part of the process of auditioning? Mm -hmm. um, or you want to be a writer, do you want to be part of the process that goes into that? And make sure you pick things that don't just involve results that you think you will love, but processes that you're willing to participate in right now. And so maybe the next time you feel inclined to be jealous of someone, someone who's in a relationship that you're not in, or who's in possession of a thing that you don't have, ask yourself, would I be willing to pay yeah. The prices mm -hmm. that they pay for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think about that with podcasts. I know some people are like, oh, I want to start a podcast. And they just think it's turn on some microphones and start talking. And that's a piece of it. I understand that. But Bex and I run a podcast together. And that requires a lot. The minimalists, though, this thing that we've built, we have a whole team of people that are required in order for us to get a message out that helps people heal their relationship with stuff. It's not simply turning on microphones. It's the price of it is a deep obsession. I every single day of my life, I am obsessed about this podcast. I'm thinking about, oh, what could I have done to be better? I'm like play, going back playing the game tapes, right? And so, oh, you know, I, that was actually way better than I anticipated. Oh, I should have answered it this way, this way, whatever. And it's constantly these little micro improvements over time. But the real price there is an obsession that crowds out other obsessions. And there's also the social price. You got to take some hits. You may not mind taking them, but not everyone has done the inner work necessary to get there. You got to have that article that was written in 2012 that didn't tell your story in a way that was reflective of who you truly are. Yeah. Right. You got to have the people that say, well, you should have talked about this rather than that. Or you should have used this word rather than that. You don't have a day that goes by without someone having a difference of opinion than you and maybe stating it in a way that's not only public, but maybe unforgiving. That too is a price that you have to pay. Mm. And, and it happens literally every day to us because when you get beyond a certain number of people, call it a hundred or so Facebook friends, and even then, good luck trying to appease a hundred Facebook friends. Impossible, right? But when you have millions of people who are listening, watching, following, et cetera, then yes, you are going to offend them, not because I'm intentionally trying to push someone's buttons, but because not everyone's going to have the same beliefs, the same opinions, the same point of view, the same desires. And also, people often think when you're describing something, you're 
making a judgment about their life. And you're always going to be misinterpreted. And that's a big, big cost. That's one that Ryan struggles with a lot. Is he's like, I, I don't care. People can say whatever they want. You go to our Wikipedia page, half of it's criticism about the minimalists. And totally fine. And it's like legitimate articles that have been written about the minimalists or things that we've, we've created. No problem with that. What Ryan has a problem with is people misunderstanding him. Yeah. And the problem is that is going to happen. People are going to misunderstand you if you put yourself out in any sort of public light. The alternative is to be an ascetic, to be in a cave, to never speak to anyone ever, and to not do anything meaningful in the world, right? And it's not that you should do something meaningful, but realize that there's always going to be a cost associated with creating something. And we have to get comfortable with paying that cost. It's not just the monetary cost. It's all of these other costs as well. And more fundamentally, being a human being. Because having a personality is intrinsically offensive. And if you haven't met anyone that is offended by you, I dare to say either you are naive in relation to certain conversations that are being had about you when you're not around, or two, just give it more time, you haven't been out enough. But for any given you, there is someone who hates you for the fact that you are you. And if everyone loves you, there's at least one person who hates you for that fact. The other thing is, it's not just about being a podcaster too. Having a voice, having a Mm -hmm. say, having an opinion, having a thought, it comes with that risk, you know? Um, In order to say anything or put any idea out there, you have to be comfortable with the fact that someone's not going to resonate with it. And that's just the cost of being a human being who wants to exercise influence. And the alternative to that is to say, I'm not going to be a causative force in my world. Mm. One of the things that I really appreciated this book about, or book four, was that it helped me understand a little bit better how we're all, especially those of us who've gone through the schooling system, at least in the U.S., um, are trained to think in a very similar way. Mm. We're trained to think, uh, we're trained to not think critically, by and large. Mm. um, And we're taught, like yes and no responses and pretty shallow level thinking on most concepts. And that spills over uh, into adulthood, right? And so we can't handle other people having different opinions from us because we think they're wrong. Wow. You know, we, we think there's a, there is one singular correct answer because that's how we've been trained to take tests, mm-hmm. right? And, yeah. and for those of us who are quote unquote good test taker takers and and good we're good quote unquote in school, it's even harder for us to wrap our heads around other people having valid opinions that are a polar opposite of ours. Um Ooh. and and respecting that and sitting with that dissonance of like, no, there's not necessarily a right or wrong answer here. This is this is human experience. There's a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of a difference of opinion, TK the other day said something very flippantly. He said, no one ever asks for a dick pic. (laughs) I didn't just shout that out without context, though. That's a hard pivot. Yeah, right. That's a hard pivot. Oh, man. I'm known for my pivots. TK, what was the origin of this comment? I don't know what we were talking about, but I, I, I think the subject, it was something about like narcissism and 
narcissistic things. I don't, I wish I remember the context, but I didn't just shout out. <laughs> Nobody ever asked for a dick pic. DK, what are you over there doing? <laughs> you just sit on the couch, <laughs> theoretically <laughs> shouted that out. No, and um, I didn't ask for a dick pic. And what I, my response to that was like, well, no, that's obviously not true. Plenty of people want dick pics. It depends on what you mean by that. But also like there's an inherent truth in what he's saying. The essence of what he is saying is sending an unsolicited dick pic to someone is not a great attraction strategy. Yeah, correct. And, <laughs> and here's, here's the problem. And we've talked about this on how to love and we could flesh it out a little bit here, but like the problem that men and women often have is we assume that my attraction strategy, the things that turn me on are going to now be the things that turn you on. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, it's different from every individual. And there are archetypes, the male archetype, the female archetype. But even there, there's wide variances. If you look at the bell curve of, of different people within those loosely connected groups. And what I was talking to TK and I said, hey, let's just save it for the podcast. We'll talk about this because we'll have Bex on here. We'll make uh, her uncomfortable with this, but I don't think she gets uncomfortable there. But the sending of an unsolicited dick pic is saying, hey, here's really, it's when I say judgment is but a mirror that reflects the insecurities of the judge. This is sort of the inverse of that. The I'm, I'm showing, here's what I would be attracted by. I would like to see this sort of picture from you. Yes. Well, it's it's also like a certain out of touchness with reality. Also, yes. Okay, so <laughs> people of many different backgrounds have chosen to send pictures to other people of themselves, okay? Nobody has a monopoly on that. However, if you were to take a survey of guys and say, how many of you have ever received an unwanted picture from a woman of her body or some part of her body? I don't think you're going to get a whole lot of guys who'd be like, uh, yeah, man, I, I, I've i gotten a really offensive, frustrating, like unsolicited pic from a girl before. Yeah. On the other hand, you go to women and say, how many of you have ever received an unsolicited pic of another man's dick? I think the answers would be disappointing. I think the answers would be maybe concerning. I think if you're a guy and you listen to them say it, you probably put your head down and want to apologize for all the guys and be like, I'm sorry that that was done to you. And I think it's more than just like, hey, I'm going to love you in the way that I want to be loved. I think the unsolicited dick, dick pic represents for me peak narcissism. Mm. It represents just being so consumed with some end that you're trying to achieve that you are literally paying zero attention whatsoever to the person on the receiving end and how this might impact them. Mm -hmm. Because it's more than just it doesn't work. The unsolicited dick, dick pic isn't just something that's going to be received and make a woman go, oh, no, I didn't want that. I didn't want that. <laughs> the impact that you're having on the other end, if that's unsolicited, it's just, to me, it's just peak narcissism. I agree. We're going to leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole group of women who just threw their shoulders out from raising their hands going, oh, I know what he's talking about. <laughs> but also, I would say the flip side there is like, it's okay to solicit one also. Yes, yeah. Bex yeah. has totally sent me a text like, hey, can you send me? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, especially when we lived apart, right? Yeah. Like there, there's a time and a, a place for it. And the 
the solicitation piece seems to be the key aspect to this. I like how you put it on back. So you're like, now look, sometimes people do ask for it. Like I get a few requests from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you framed it. (laughs) To be frank, it's not something that I'm eager to do anyway. Like it is what it is, right? I'd much rather be the recipient of a picture, not a dick pic, but um, just not my not my personal preference there. But I like receiving, especially when Bex and I were, were living in separate states, which actually leads me to a question, a text question we had from Stephanie. How do two residences work for a married couple with kids? So um, we have two residences, Bex, but we live in one house now. And so it's been something we have to really, um, we've been adjusting. Because for the last, I don't know, we've been together seven years. We've always lived apart. Even when we were living in the same state in Montana. And there was a period of time because Ella was still going to school in Montana that we were dividing our time between Montana and California. You most of the time in Montana, me most of the time in California. And what we were doing is we were finding a dynamic about that, that worked for us. And part of the way that we found what worked for us is by finding what didn't work for us. Mm. And... We've unpacked this quite a bit on how to love and a lot of the resentment that came from that. But then resentment can happen on the other side as well. Spending too much time together. We're both introverts. And so we both enjoy spending a lot of time alone, having the distance that creates that desire. We bought a house recently in Ventura County and it has basically I sold all of my furniture and bought my dream house, which is just like a little, I don't know, 300 square foot garage that's converted into a guest house. And so I have my own sort of place. It's my own room, essentially, to go live in. And we're still trying to figure out the dynamic to make sure that we're not too close. Because if we're too close, we might lose the closeness (laughs) that we have. Would you like to elaborate on that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think... Just to, to a little bit more directly answer Stephanie's question you know, for basically for the first seven years of our relationship, we did live in two completely separate residences and we do have a daughter. Um, it it works because we were allowed, we, lo- we allowed ourselves to have the difficult conversations. We talked about resentment that would build up, but, uh, you know, with respect to our dynamic and how we were spending our time. And um, we never shied away from talking about difficult things that could potentially upset the other person. And we extend that to Ella. So, you know, I think a lot of people think, oh, you know, a couple could live in a certain way. Like a couple could live in two separate places, but you had a kid and that's never going to work. Like, well, no, of course it can work. (laughs) You know, she, she just has a different experience of what it's like to be a kid than other kids do. She has a different experience from what I had as a kid. She has a different experience from what you had as a kid. And you and I both had extremely different childhoods. So I think for me, what was really helpful um, in, in the development of our relationship and our living arrangement was realizing that we can have a relationship on whatever terms we determine is most appropriate as long as, you know, we're loving and respectful and compassionate towards each other and towards Ella. Do you have any examples of some of those difficult conversations that we've had? Because 
I know we we get specific on your podcast, but but yeah. here for the listeners, I think it's it's worth noting that a lot of these conversations stem from what is culturally acceptable mm-hmm. and what judgment other people might have, whether it's your neighbors, your peer group, your friends, your coworkers, whomever. Yeah. What judgment are they going to have about me? Yeah. And am I going to contort my life in order to appease the people around me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that I can fit a narrative for my neighbor. Oh, well, that's awful that you two live apart. No, yeah. it's awesome. It'd be awful <laughs> if we lived together all the time. And it's not saying that I'm now prescribing that to anyone else. I'm not telling you to change anything about what you're doing, but also realize that you can you know, live separately. Bex is an independent woman. Not that's a good thing or a bad thing. It is just a thing. And she happens to be extremely independent. I'm independent as well, but also part of a relationship is that dance. A dance requires some dependency. It doesn't, it can't be a hundred percent independent in a relationship. We lean into our independence, but then we also lean into the help of, of one another. Mm -hmm. So do you have any examples that really shine through? Yeah. I mean, most recently, you know, Ella and I typically, um, visit my family in Minnesota, just the two of us. Uh And Josh typically stays in California. And this last time we did that, and that's that's been a pattern for several years at this point. Um, so Ella's totally fine with it. You know, she generally doesn't ask if you're coming back to Minnesota anymore. She's just like, oh yeah, it's mom and mom and I time and, mm-hmm. and other family time. But this time, uh, one of her cousins asked, mm-hmm where Josh was. Mm -hmm. And so we had the conversation with him. He's in kindergarten. Mm. um, And kind of the rest of the family was, was around at the same time. And, you know, we, we had this open and honest conversation about how not everyone enjoys being in giant group dynamics. I have a very large family um, and it just doesn't work having having Josh around for more than a couple hours. Yeah. And so what we were talking about with with her cousin was like, you know, are there times where where you feel overwhelmed or that you might need some space? You know, he's like, yeah, yeah. He gave this one kind of funny example. And and I was like, that's kind of how Josh is all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, yeah. And, And instead of, because here's what I used to try to do. I would try to suck it up, basically, which is the worst advice there ever was, right? I mean, um, Jordan is going through a death in his family recently. And you imagine if he would have called me and I'd be like, hey, man, uh, I know you're not looking for some advice, but I've got some for you. Just suck it up, man. Like, how awful and inconsiderate would that be? And yet, I do that to myself all the time. I'm inconsiderate to myself because I'm always telling myself, ah, man up, suck it up. Make yourself miserable so that other people can be happy. Not realizing the level of hubris that's in that. Oh, I have the power to make you happy? No, you're not happy because of me. Maybe you're happy in my presence, right? But it's not me who injects happiness into you. Well, sometimes, Bex. (laughs) I, I got a question for you about that. But but I, but I want to ask Bex about Josh not being there for the, these trips. Mm-hmm. Have you ever felt in those kinds of moments like, 
man, I wish he was here. Or have you ever struggled with that? Have you ever wanted him to just at least once or twice just suck it up so you can have him around? So he has been, he has done it a couple times. Mm-hmm. He's been back um, for these, you know, big family gatherings or whatever. Um, and what I kind of learned from that, especially as we transition to this other way of doing it where he doesn't participate is I am actually happy he's not mm. because I don't want to make him miserable. And what I've learned is that if the other person is miserable, that actually makes me more miserable or or less happy. So, you know, maybe I'm having a, a peak experience with my family, yeah. but if Josh is there and he's miserable, that's bringing down bringing down my level as well. And so for me, it's like, it's better that he does his own thing and that we do ours. And like, yeah, I could make a, a decision to, you know, do something else, the, you know, the three of us to sort of quote unquote make up for it or whatever. But um, I just, I just have a different way of framing quality time with each other than I think a lot of people do. You know, one of the beautiful things about how we live our life is that we are, um, we're entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And so we have a lot more control over our time than some other families do. Than, for example, my immediate nuclear family with whom we get together when we go back to Minnesota. Um, None of them are entrepreneurs. And so their time is much more siloed into vacations and, you know, less, um, they, they don't have as much flexibility mm. as, as Josh and I do. And so these, these family, quote unquote, family times with the broader group of us um, are, are a bit too rigid, uh, uh, you know, for, for Josh and I, like, he would love to spend an hour or two with the group. Yeah. And then have that be enough. And I would love that too. But that's not really an option when you're talking about going across the country um, to see a group of people. And so since that's not really on the table, we we do it a bit a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Um, would, would it be nice to have a different arrangement? Yeah, sometimes I feel like, oh, it'd be nice if, you know, the three of us could happily participate in this family group dynamic. But that's not that's not us. That's not our rea- reality. Yeah. And I I tend to put much more weight and emphasis on how awesome our relationship is out, outside of that exact immediate example that might not be like the norm. Um, and so I take an extreme amount of joy and pleasure in a lot of the other ways in which we're together as a family and the way that we live our life and the opportunities that the way we live our life provide us. Um, And because of that, sometimes, you know, the traditional family get together isn't on the table and that's okay. Cause I like this other giant way that we live um, so much more. I like how well rehearsed you are at gratitude, the ability you have to focus on what's working, what's fantastic about your relationship and to just, highlight the hell out of that. Mm. That's incredibly difficult to do because that's that's not how we're hardwired for problem solving, right? If I'm if I'm sick, 
I am going to zoom in on the one thing that's not acting right. And I'm not going to be like, oh, thank God my eyesight's good. My heart is beating fine. My knees don't hurt. Because that's not the mindset that's going to help me zoom in on the problem and solve it. And so in relationships, it's easy to just focus on the one area where we're not clicking, mm-hmm. the one the one or two things that we're not compatible on mm-hmm. and ignore the fact that like 99% of the time, or even heck, even if it's 82% of the time, we're just like kicking ass and taking names together. And I, mm-hmm. I think you do that really well. Mm. And I would, I would even look at it in a way that, not to say that we're incompatible there, maybe we are compatible. And it's just a different kind of compatibility. Mm. Whereas Bex is an introvert. I'm an introvert. Yet society has told us that the way for a relationship to thrive is to spend all your time together. Well, no, wait a minute. We're compatible in a way that we also need those valleys, those times apart, so that we can have the the peaks together. Mm-hmm. You can't have one. You know, the, the the peaks confer the valleys. The valleys confer the peaks. Let's move on to amass it or trash it, Alabama. We got something special today from our good friend T.K. Coleman. He brought in something. Speaking of, well, I'm going to let you tell the story on this T.K. Let's hold it up for the camera here. A beautiful framed. Can you see it here? I'll hold it up. There we go. <laughs> it's covering up my face. That's way better. All right. So this TK, explain this to me. What do I have? What am I holding here in my mm. delicate hands? Okay, man. This is incredibly difficult for me to talk about. So y'all be patient with me because I've never talked about this before. Mm. But um, this comes from. Um, a former Praxis participant. For those of you who know me, you know that um, several years ago, I helped co-found an apprenticeship program called Praxis. And um, I was the first education director for the program, and I I really helped it get on its feet and uh, set itself up for scaling in those first five years. Um, I no longer work there now, but I have a lot of fun memories from a lot of, especially those, those participants in the first few classes, because Those first few classes were very small. Uh, We were still figuring out a lot of things. And the the people who were going through the program at that time were, they were buying into the philosophy. You know, as we began to get bigger and produce a lot of success stories about, hey, this student went to this, this participant, went to this apprenticeship and is making this much money. You know, you attract bigger crowds and more people that are, you know, like, hey, I, I can make money if I go through the program. But the people that were going through the program in those first few years, they believed that we would help them launch their careers, but they believed in the people behind it more than anything. Yeah. And they believed in the philosophy we had about alternative education more than anything. And so I have a special closeness to all of the participants in those first few classes. And uh, there was one participant by the name of KJ. And I remember um, the day before his, um, his first day at his apprenticeship, he reaches out to me and we get on the phone together and he's like, um, I'm scared, man. And I was like, what are you scared of, man? And he was like, you know, I just feel like, you know, I've, I've failed a couple of times in my past and I'm, I'm, I'm really afraid that, you know, I might fail again. And, you know, we just sort of unpacked that a little bit and we just talked about it. And, we got to a place where by the end of the conversation, you know, he was laughing and feeling good. And I said to him, I says, hey, man, just take one day at a time, brother. Just take one day at a time. And you don't owe it to anybody to succeed 
All you, all you owe is to yourself to just be true to who you are, to learn whatever you can. And if this turns out to be something that you don't like, you can change your mind. You can do something different. But let's just take one day at a time. And I says, call me at the end of the day. Let me know how it goes. And he did. And, and the day went well. But it wasn't long after that phone call that another one of our participants who was roommates with him um, noticed that he didn't come out of his room when he was always, you know, just a hustler who would get after it and, and always be reliable and on time. And, um, you know, once received, once she received some assistance on, on getting that door open, um, you know, she found his body there and he had left a note behind. And the day started off like a regular note, uh, regular work day where everybody was just attending to regular things. And you received that phone call about losing one of your participants and losing them in that way. It was, it was earth shattering, man. And, and it was heartbra- heartbreaking, you know, and it's, 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 it's hard to approach this work the same after you go through something like that. And I don't, I don't think I, I noticed right then and there, but I, I think that would affect me in ways that I, I didn't understand at that time and, and longer for than what I thought it would. With that being said, um, we wanted to honor him in some kind of way because he hadn't finished the, the program yet. And, you know, he left behind a mother who cared very deeply for him, a girl that he was dating at the time that he was very close to. And so what we decided to do was, was create this plaque. We, we weren't in the business of giving out certificates and we're not a, you know, we're not a credentialist, you know, organization. You know, yeah. we, we weren't about that. Anti-credentialist. Um, and so, but we decided to create this plaque, you know, and it's got his name on it. Praxis recognizes KJ Hare, 2015 winter class, goodie bag, Austin, Texas. That was the name of the startup that he worked at. And then, you know, we had a little note that we wrote about him, um, you know, just saying how, how great he did. But then we had a quote from his CEO who said, it was obvious KJ was a unique talent with immense potential. The extraordinary level of depth and wisdom he displayed left an intensely strong impression on me. And we, we, we created one of these for his mother and for his girlfriend. We thought it would be a nice gift to them. Mm-hmm. And given what he meant to me, I said, hey, create one for me too. I want one. And I, I you know, I got one of these nice plaques for myself and I held it up in my office and I, I hung it up there for years. Um, for the entire time we were in our older place, that was right by my desk. And it was just, it was just a way for me on the darker days to kind of remember what it's all about. I want to, I want to honor the memory of this young man. And I want to remember that as young people are trying to figure out what they're going to do in the next stage of life, that it's not just about their job, that everybody has a psychological battle, a psychological war that they're fighting and to be sensitive to that fact. And to try to do the best that I can to, to help equip them with the tools and the, the affirmation and the, the love that they need to, to be able to win that battle. And so I, 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 I kept that for many years. It seems to me that you created this to honor him. Created it to honor him. That's right. And you've done that. <clears throat> and in fact, now you're honoring him in front of many thousands of people. And holding on to a thing is not always the best way to honor someone, right? And I'm obviously not going to tell you to trash this thing. 
Well, well let, me, let me tell you why that even came up. Yeah, because this is you brought this in. We didn't, <laughs> yeah. for, hey, uh, TK, bring in that plaque. We're going to tell you to get rid of it. Right. You didn't say bring something in that you value a lot. <laughs> We're going to tear it to shreds. No. So we have significantly downsized in our move from Charleston, South Carolina to Southern California. You minimalist. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I no longer have a home office. Look, if I lived in a mansion and I just had tons and tons of space and I had a big office, I'd find a place for this and, and keep it up there. Okay. Mm. Live in a much smaller space. I don't have a home office. Um, when I work from home, um, I go to like a coffee shop. I, I you know, Hopefully we'll get a, some kind of table that I can work on at home, but I don't even have a, a table. And so I'll like go to um, maybe like the common area in our apartment where we live, or I'll go to a coffee shop or something like that, or come here and uh, work in a studio. But um, it's, there's really no place for it in terms of like putting it up decoratively like I had it when I had my home office. And it's mostly now a thing that I, that has traveled with me and, it, and it's there in a box because it's there in a box because I want it to be there and, yeah. and, and I want to be able to, to look at it and remember it whenever that opportunity comes. But it's in a box because there's just no place to put that yeah. um, in my place. And so there's a part of me that's like, well, hang on to it, man, because one day you might upsize mm -hmm. and you might get a home mm -hmm. office again and <laughs> you can put it there. And there's another part of me that's like, like, there, and and that part of me also says, you know, if you if you destroy that thing or you throw that thing out, like you're throwing him out, man, mm. you know. And but there's another part of me that says, you know, that guy lives in your heart too, and and he's embodied in the work that you do, and you know, no matter what anybody else thinks, because nobody even knows that I had this until today. <laughs> <laughs> now now they know. If I throw it away, they'll know. You know what he means to you and you know how much of a role his spirit, his energy plays and how you choose to express yourself. So I don't know, man. I don't know. But I, but I got I to gotta stop talking about it right here. Here's the thing about mm. letting go of sentimental items. My first step into minimalism was accidental. My mom died and you saw it in the last documentary on Netflix. I had to deal with her stuff and letting go of those things. And I realized if I kept everything, I couldn't commingle mom's stuff with my stuff. I already had a big house, full basement, full of stuff. And so I was going to rent a giant storage locker and essentially create a mausoleum of stuff, right? And that is often what we do with these things. They become, it's almost a burden to you at this point. And it's not a burden, not a strong burden. It's not like, oh my God, what, what am I possibly going to do with this? The problem is not the one certificate. It is the, the feeling as though I should hold on to this. Or as you have talked about the story of, if I get rid of this, am I getting rid of him? As soon as you start to say those things out loud, you realize the absurdity of that mm -hmm. because he'll live on in your heart and your mind and the minds of other people in perpetuity, right? Now, a long enough timeline, none of us are living on anyway, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I see this and I say, oh, this is, this is beautiful. You created this to honor him. Mm. And if you let it go today and a month from now, a year from now, five years from now when you get that mansion on all those minimalist paychecks, <laughs> <laughs> when you end up with that mansion and you want a new one of these, guess what? He's not in there. You just print up another one. 
you get another nice frame and you put it back up on your wall. And there are a lot of things that we get rid of that can be replaced Mm. because the memory isn't in the thing. The person isn't in the thing. We can take a picture of it. I mean, this is a picture, so you have it, right? You already have a picture of it. And now it's immortalized for the rest of your life on this podcast, Mm. right? We have it here to honor him as well. And by doing that honoring, we can let go. I really like that last part too, about it's not just amass it or trash it, but there's also that that possibility for recreation if needed, yeah. right? Sometimes letting something go can have a, an unnecessary sense of permanence about it. Mm. That if I let this go, I will never in any meaningful sense be able to recapture or recreate that aspect of it that is most meaningful to me. That's right. Mm. And as obvious as it is, after you spelled it out, it never occurred to me that like, you printed this out from a template, <laughs> right? Like, like, like you were the guy who said, let's do this. Like you have all of this on a computer. And if you ever regret it, yeah, you can go get it back at any point. Mm. If I were in your shoes, the thing that I would also consider is a digital picture frame. And I did this with my mom's stuff initially where I took a picture of a bunch of her stuff. Mm. And then... I just rotated it. It's 100, 150 pictures in a digital picture frame. So in a weird way, I still had my mom's stuff there. as a remi- And eventually, that helped me even let go of those. I didn't yeah. need that reminder anymore. But you could certainly put this in a digital picture frame. You already have the digital version of this. And maybe that is a step toward letting go. I just need you to help me get that minimalist match in there. <laughs> 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 you reminded me of Deion Sanders. They, they did this show with Deion Sanders. He built a uh, a, a back house that was a, a tiny back house, but tiny for him was seven thousand square feet. Oh my god! Oh my gosh. So his back house, his, his tiny home, was seven thousand square feet. <laughs> Let's move on to something a little more lighthearted. This is a segment we call Checkout Line Wisdom. This is where we review something that we saw that. We were waiting in a checkout line somewhere. My friend Jacob from Booklight, he was a producer on our last film, Less Is Now, and we're working on him with him on some other projects currently. But he sent me and Ryan a text with this image, and Danny's going to pull it up here. He saw this at a checkout line here, and it says, nothing haunts us like the things we didn't buy. And so it's like a... A table tent signage, that's what we call it in retail. If you're watching the video version, you'll see it somewhere here above my left shoulder. Jordan will put it on the screen. But nothing haunts us like the things we didn't buy. And it gives you that one last pause to say, oh, you know what? I kind of did want to buy that bracelet. And while I'm here, it's going to haunt me mm-hmm. if I don't buy it. This is insidious. And what I would say is that the opposite is usually true. Nothing haunts us like the things that we do buy because we walk around our homes that are full of hundreds of thousands of useless items. And so it's not the thing we thought was going to fulfill the dream for us, but it's the ghost of that dream that still haunts us. And so we're in our homes surrounded by useless things, haunted by those things because we thought they were going to serve some sort of purpose in our lives. We thought they were going to bring us joy. We thought they were going to make us calmer, but they're doing the opposite. They're keeping us up at night. They're haunting our lives. Hmm. 
And nothing is more fleeting and insubstantial than the nightmares we have about the things we didn't buy. Oh, yes. I've always said about money and wealth is that money is a symbolic representation for creative power. And the capacity to acquire wealth is correlated with the capacity to create value. And money is, albeit an imperfect way, a way of measuring that, a way of getting at that. And so when you talk about economics, you're not talking about money per se. You're talking about human action. You're talking about creativity. You're talking about value creation. And so if you're ever in a position where you can buy something and you choose not to, that is an expression of how you are choosing in that moment to use your power, right? Because every decision that you make to buy or not buy is an expression of your personal power. And money is just, you know, the sort of symbolic representation of that. And so if you are making a decision to not buy something from a place of power, you still have that power. Mm -hmm. Because that power isn't in the thing that you want to buy. That power is in you, right? And so no matter how many nightmares you have about, oh, maybe I should have bought that thing. Well, you still have that power. And if you need to, you can go back and use that power on that thing. But if you're busy using the power that said no to that thing you didn't need on something else that is truly worthy of you, then that becomes this powerful force of light that dispels this haunting ghost of you should have bought that. Yeah, I. this just seems unbelievably vapid to me. <laughs> Like, no, I've never been haunted by the thing yeah. I didn't buy. Because the, the truth of the matter is maybe, sure, maybe like something was on sale, like an incredible sale, and I chose not to buy it. And a couple days later, it's no longer on sale. Well, whatever. If I like really need the thing, then it's like, okay, then I really, really need the thing. And I I use my power, my, my financial power to overcome the, you know, the bad, quote, decision to not buy it. But like, that's literally never happened. (laughs) I can't think of an example where that's been the case. And if it does happen, all you have to do is pan out a year. Yeah. And all the things you didn't buy will more than make up for the one time you missed out on the sale price. Right. The small delta or whatever. Because we always feel compelled to buy something because it's on sale. I'd be dumb not to buy it. It's 30% off. It's 40% off. Nothing wrong with a discount, but it's never the primary decision maker for me. Yeah. Because the truth is, it's 100% off if I don't buy it. Absolutely. Just walk out of the store. (laughs) Yeah, it's all about the creating urgency. It's like those late night infomercials where they're selling you something and then they have like the two minute clock and it's going down. I, you know, I've always said, look, if you really want that thing, just let the clock run out and then call them two minutes afterwards. I'd be like, can I still get it? You think they're going to be like, nope, we're all out. Nope, screw you. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Only available for the next 20 minutes. (laughs) This product will disappear. We're going to destroy all of our existing inventory. If you don't call in the next 20 minutes, no, they will. They will always be ready to take your money as soon as you want to give it to them. I had one of the worst salesmen. I was in my 20s going to buy a car. And it was in November. And he said, I wish you would have come here in October. We had the best sale going on. I said, so you can't honor that price? I'm sorry, I can't. I said, do you think the other dealership up in Dayton can can honor it? And they were like, oh, wait, hold on a second. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And all of a sudden, he realized, I mean, the worst possible sales technique there, right? Because the truth is, if someone wants your money, 
for their product or service, what are they going to say? No, screw you. No, it's absurd. These are falsities created. It's a false sense of urgency that marketers create to try to create impulse for your purchase. And that's what this whole checkout line wisdom segment is about because there's no wisdom in this sign at all. Let's move on to advertisements suck because, well, advertisements suck. This week's sucky ad comes by way of Starbucks. And uh, this is the most insidious. There are these (laughs) giant milkshakes, caffeinated milkshakes (laughs) that they sell. Now, I often work out of a Starbucks where we live. We don't, uh, or Bex and I don't have internet at home. And when I need to communicate with Ryan or TK or the rest of the team, I have to go to a coffee shop. And the one I like to go to closes at 2. So if I need to work after 2 p.m., there's a Starbucks not too far away. And I will sit outside generally, mooch off their Wi-Fi, and buy a black coffee. Although when I sit outside, I'm next to the drive-thru. And I have recognized that, oh, Starbucks is not a coffee shop. I didn't know that until I started working out of this particular Starbucks because it is essentially a milkshake factory. (laughs) It uh, processed sugar drinks and it's a calorie dispenser. And we are saying those calories, that sweetness, that pleasure is what? Happiness. Because if you're watching the video version of this, I'll describe it if you're just listening to the audio. So it's okay either way. If you're watching the video version, you'll see this. It says, chase happy things. So first off, happiness is essentially meaningless in most contexts now. And this is why someone like Kapil Gupta says happiness doesn't exist. Because what you mean by happiness is probably completely different from what TK means by happiness and what Alabama means by happiness, something else. And what they're really saying here is not chase happy things, but chase pleasure. But of course, our chasing of pleasure is the path away from peace, the path away from happiness. And so what they're really saying here is run away from happiness. Because if you drink two of these every day, you're not going to be very happy with the way that your frame looks, the way that you feel, how sluggish you are with your BMI, with all of these other health markers, with maybe your own diabetes or becoming pre-diabetic from drinking too many of these. And it's not to say there's anything wrong with drinking one of these drinks, unless you have some sort of intolerance with it, but that's highly individual. The problem is the selling of happiness. It presupposes that happiness is in that sugary drink and it doesn't exist in you. Yeah. I I just love Bex's face expressions. I, He's exacerbated. <laughs> I, this may, the ad makes me angry, to be honest. Like the the sell the marketing of sugar in particular, um, and the equation of sugar with pleasure. I mean to a great extent, they the advertisements do the same thing with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, these these things that we legitimately get addicted to, getting equated to happiness and pleasure, it just it makes my blood boil. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, so you you get people addicted to it, and the, you know this is even worse because it's got caffeine in it, so mm-hmm. it's like a double addiction. Yes, um, and then. They, they they feel good in the moment because it is an addiction. So when you have that addiction fed, you do get a pleasure boost. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but then you in, invariably feel worse afterwards. That's right. And so you're feeding this nasty cycle of not only physical consumption of stuff that makes you sick, but like the consumerism around it. Like this thing will make you happy, mm-hmm. you know, chase happy things. It's it just, nonsense. Yeah, it it, it is. And it, now, TK, I think one of the other reasons that Bex gets so frustrated by this is she's a she's a registered dietitian, she's a nutritionist, and mm-hmm. for more than a decade, she worked with young people, many of whom had eating disorders that are often exacerbated by marketing mm-hmm. and by the things that you should want, or it's okay, you deserve it. Treat yourself with this illness-inducing substance. This isn't even food. It's a food-like product. And it's not that I'm against Starbucks. Clearly, I work from there. I drink black coffee from there, and it's fine. But realizing they're not a coffee shop anymore, they are a calorie dispensary, it's disheartening. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me about some of these um, ads is once upon a time, you could you could learn a lot about what they know concerning human psychology, right? You could ask, what is it they know about us and how we make our decisions that would cause them to play us in that way? But now what's happening is advertisers are using phrases and jokes and imagery that is just outlandish for the sake of outlandish or just you know, attention grabbing or different for the sake of different because so many of them have run out of things to say. And we now live in a world where it's like we've run out of headlines. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so and so now we just have to venture out into something that's even more absurd or something that's even more attention grabbing because mm-hmm. you can't say anymore. Like, here's something untrue you could say that actually could directly influence me. You could say, our milkshakes are the best in the world. Wow, I already like milkshakes. Yours is the best in the world. That's not even true, but that's a pretty strong claim that's at least directly related to your your uh, product, right? And that makes me want to grab a milkshake. But that's not enough because too many people have already used that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're mm-hmm. a long time in. So now we got to say something different, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so we already moved away from truth. Our milkshakes are delicious. Okay, maybe that's true, but our milkshakes are the best in the world. And now that's become boring. And so we got to get more and more extreme. And next thing you know, we're going to be putting quotes by Confucius on there mm-hmm. just because <laughs> at least I'll remember it. It reminded mm-hmm. me we were having dinner the other, I think it was last night and we were, we saw an old political ad. It was for like a attorney general, like a local a district attorney is what it was. And the political ad, all, and this was like from maybe the 50s, it has said, doing a good job. <laughs> like you can never get by with that now. Doing a good job is not enough. We have to use superlatives. We have to go over the top. We have to exaggerate because the gratuitousness threshold has been increased significantly Mm. to where we are now chasing happiness through our frappuccinos. Let's move on to obsolete objects. Malabam, I'm going to skip the first one and go straight to the second one today. Bex and I saw this. We were driving this morning down uh, the 101 toward LA and we saw these sunglasses on a woman next to us. This is an (laughs) approximate pair of sunglasses. If you're watching the video version, you'll see them above me. I have a thing for big, stupid sunglasses or just big, stupid glasses in general. It's a particular kink of mine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Bex was saying, like, I like the way sunglasses look and I even like the functionality of them. But 
I think they've become obsolete in my life. So this subject or this topic, when we do obsolete objects as a segment, what we're really talking about things that once added value to our lives, but maybe our lives would be fine or even better without these objects, which by the way, you can send us your obsolete objects podcast at theminimalists.com. Oh, you can also send us your sucky advertisements, your checkout line wisdom, your amass it or trash it questions. Should you keep something? Should you let it go? We'll let you know on a future podcast episode. Just send it to podcast at theminimalists.com. But Bex, we were driving and you said sunglasses. I feel like I used to like them, but they trick our bodies. Yeah, I mean, I still like them. I like them from a design point. I like them from an aesthetic point. Like, but I I just don't like wearing them anymore because they do trick our bodies. They they filter out certain you know, wavelengths of light Mm -hmm. that our bodies really need in order to tell what time of day it is. And turns out that's actually really important for our health. Um, Circadian biology, circadian rhythm, like it just, it makes a big difference being exposed to the full spectrum of of light at any given point in the day versus a highly filtered one. Mm -hmm. And granted, like, you know, with the example of driving this morning in the car, like in a car, as long as like your, your windows are up and you don't have a, a convertible or something, um, you're still not getting the full spectrum of light. It's not like you're outside where you would be getting the full spectrum of light. So driving is one of those examples where it's like, yeah, it's probably not making that big of a difference to have sunglasses on versus not. But when you're actually outside, mm-hmm. um, it does make a big difference. Yeah. And so I've just kind of been like, well, yeah, they look cool. <laughs> and yes, it's it's nice sometimes um, to to have a, a pair of glasses, especially when you're driving, to reduce glare and eye fatigue and stuff. But just feels like an obsolete item at this point, despite and, them being very attractive sometimes. And often it's difficult, especially at first, because you're so used. You've been trained to wear them, especially you're going to the beach and it's so sunny out. But that's when you want to be exposed mm-hmm. to the full spectrum of light, I'm not saying stare at the sun, obviously. No, no. But what I'm saying is that it makes sense to go without because of your circadian rhythm for your own health. Yeah, yeah. And you, so what you'll find, generally speaking, is if you've been wearing sunglasses outside most of the time or all of the time, that there's a an adjustment period where your eyes are, are they're pretty unhealthy, frankly. They don't, react the same way as they're designed to react to the bright, full sunlight. And so there's a, I don't know what the window of of acclimation is, but there's a period of time in which it's just going to feel bright and overwhelming. And maybe you wear a hat or, you know, some other sort of mitigation strategy where you're out for a few minutes and then you go back inside and then you're out for a few minutes later and you go back inside. But um, yeah, I don't even notice it now. Yeah. I never wear sunglasses and I don't squint. It doesn't hurt my eyes. You know, every now and then, like when I'm on a boat, like on the water and the sun is really intense, like I'll be a little squinty, but mm. it's pretty rare. I usually wear a hat. But other than that, that's the that's the only accommodation. Mm. I've never really worn sunglasses. Yeah, I have. I wear glasses most of the time, so I I don't want to layer over there. So I feel a lot better hearing that. Yeah, I don't feel like I'm behind because I'm like, oh no, the California heat. I should wear sunglasses and a hat and da da da. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, like vision glasses filter 
not all of the same things, but it's mm-hmm. not quite. It's kind of like a car window. It's yeah. still it still filters stuff, but yeah. I'm going to wrap up here with one final segment before we get to our right here, right now, and our added value. I got a bunch of added value for you today, but before we get into that little segment we do called Photo Friday Home Tour, this is a picture that I call Fairy Princess Dinosaur. Now, I can give a little backstory on this. This is our hideous kitchen. Uh, We bought the house. We really enjoyed the house. We really liked the house. It's very simple, but it has a very blue kitchen. And it's fine. It's completely functional. In fact, it's probably the biggest kitchen that I've had in in a long time, even though it's just a normal-sized kitchen. Our previous kitchen, we didn't have a tiny house. We had a tiny kitchen, Bex. (laughs) Yeah. It was very, very, very small. Although aesthetically, I preferred that kitchen because it was wood and white and nice. And then we have this, which is uh, blue and blue and blue. And um, <laughs> luckily, on- we both do like blue. <laughs> if it's going to be any color. Like, okay, blue. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll take the blue over if it was red or something like that. But what we have here, you see a picture on the fridge. Now, I don't like fridge magnets. I don't like anything on the fridge whatsoever. And if it were up to me, we'd have nothing. If it were up to Bex, we'd have multiple things on the fridge. And not to say she's right and I'm I'm wrong or vice versa. It just is what it is at this point, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have we, we came to a compromise where, hey, we have a photo on the fridge. But what if I want multiple photos? So what we do is we print it out or I print it out a bunch of photos that are really cute obscene sometimes photos like this obscene photo that you're looking at right now if you're watching the video version of the podcast (laughs) and it's a picture of ella she was how old in this four four yeah and she couldn't decide for halloween if she wanted to be a, a fairy a princess or a dinosaur and so because we weren't limiting her she just decided to be all three can i append this. Yes. She actually decided she wanted to be a dinosaur first. Uh-huh. And so I purchased a dinosaur costume for her. And then she loved it. But like a couple weeks later, she's like, I actually want to be a, a fairy. I was like, okay, well, I already got you this <laughs> dinosaur costume. Mm-hmm. And she kind of gives me this funny look. I was like, do you want to be a fairy dinosaur? <laughs> She's like, yeah! Like, she was so excited about it. Um, and then, yeah, the, the third iteration was the princess aspect of it. So, so <laughs> And so she wanted to be all three. And instead of saying, no, you need to do this, restricting her unnecessarily, it was, it was almost the sort of improvisation theory of yes and. Oh, yeah. you want to be a dinosaur? Yes, and a princess. Yes, and a fairy. Okay, great. Wonderful. We fully support that. You can be the fairy princess dinosaur. And so what we do is we rotate these pictures on the fridge once a month, and it keeps the space fresh as well. So we just go through, and here's a new picture. Here's a new picture, as opposed to having a bunch of different pictures on the fridge. And it makes one focal point. Because you know the word focus has a plural. It's foci. There's a reason you never hear the word mm. foci. is because it's not possible to have multiple foci. We focus on one thing. So why not have one thing on which we can focus and then refresh, refresh, refresh. It keeps the kitchen new. It keeps our lives new and fresh along the way. Yeah. And I love that it, uh, it accomplishes what I enjoy about having pictures on the fridge, which is cueing memories, right? Like, oh, remember that or remember these people, remember that 
event or whatever. And for this example, it's like, remember when you got to make that amazing costume for Ella? Because, like, there was a dinosaur aspect to it. And I kind of was a little bit bummed out when she was first, like, out wanting to be a dinosaur because I liked making her costumes for her. And I was just like, I just didn't have the capacity to make a dinosaur costume. So I bought her one. And then she's like, oh, I want to be a a fairy. I want to be a princess. So we just, like, I cut the tail off of the dinosaur costume and sewed it onto the back of a leotard and like got her fairy (laughs) wings. So I got to like augment it in a really fun way that it just, it brings back the memories and I really appreciate that. I love this as an example of how we can want different things and we can find a space in the middle that Mm -hmm. enlivens both of us. Yeah. It's not as though I'm compromising and you're compromising because generally when people make some sort of big concession, one concession for another, then both people are just discontented by that concession. See, we should have done it my way. No, we should have done it my way. Ah, and, and then you get stuck in this middle ground that no one enjoys, right? And so this is a way for us to both enjoy it. Alabama's getting you a tissue here. Um, now, I'm going to skip the... I know we have some Patreon live... Our, our live stream went down in the middle of this because our internet went out. So... Patrons, apologies for the live stream going down. We generally do live streams every Tuesday, 10 a.m. We get to your questions, your comments. We're going to save. I know we have some questions collected already. We'll save them for the next live stream. All right, before we get to our added value segment this week, let's thank the beautiful Rebecca Shern for being here today. Yes, ma'am. You can check out her podcast. It is called How to Love. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Or if you want to dive deep into some really uncomfortable conversations with me and Bex, I co-host the show with her. You can find that at patreon.com slash how to love. Real quick, for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of the minimalists. Unfortunate news, we had to cancel our two Canadian tour stops. We had these two Canadian tour stops that we rescheduled a couple times, but because of some travel restrictions, about half of our team would not be able to get into the country right now. Canadians, I'm so sorry, but don't worry. As soon as those restrictions are lifted, we'll reschedule these dates. Who knows? Ryan and I have been to every province throughout Canada except PEI. We'll get there one day. We want to drag TK with us as well. So maybe this will be a great excuse for us to expand the Canadian tour as soon as we are able to. Stay tuned to our email news list, uh, theminimalists.com. You'll be the first to know. But also, since we've been talking a lot about kids today, TK, I wanted to throw this out there. You've been talking to a lot of high schools, occasionally middle schools, colleges as well. And you've told me that you're willing to go speak to certain schools for free. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Now, if it's Nabisco or Starbucks, you got to pay me. Okay? <laughs> Don't try to take advantage of the minimalists and get me for free. Um, Starbucks, I mean, Burger King especially, after I defended the ads, they, they got to pay me. <laughs> no, so I, I talk with uh, different high schools, uh, usually one every month. And my, the program that I created is called Revolution of One. And it's based on the premise that the best way to create a healthier and a freer society is by starting with the individuals who comprise it. And you do that by teaching people how to leverage the things that exist within their locus of control, how to be the predominant creative forces in their own lives, how to start 
with their own health, their own mindset, their own work, their own discipline, their own family, their own relationships, and how to expand outward from there by learning how to be a person of possibility within that sphere. And so I talk about all sorts of topics from leadership, entrepreneurial thinking, creativity, and problem solving. And what I usually do is I usually work with the teacher or someone from that school to talk a little bit about what sorts of things are your students struggling with, because it's different for every every group, and what sorts of things do you want them to walk out of there being able to do. And then I customize the workshop and I go in and I talk to the, the students. So because I have a limited amount of time, I can only do one of these a month. And so what I try to do is, is maximize the experience by saying, you know, try to get as many students at one time as you can together. If you can get 50, 100 students together, um, you know, for one opportunity, then I can come out there and we can make that happen for free. I don't have to charge you for that. This is part of what I do um, as the education director at Fee. And so it's it's a labor of love. It's something that I'm really passionate about. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the privilege of seeing it positively impact students. So if you've got students that you want to learn more about, you know, the abundance mindset, entrepreneurial thinking, overcoming adversity, whatever it may be, email me at podcast at theminimalists.com. Malabama will get that over to uh, TK and he'll work on the details with you. What a gift that would be if you were a high school student or just any student to have TK show up and talk about some of these challenges that we are facing right now. For added value segment this week, we got a few things to talk about. Malabama's bringing me a stack of things. I'll still grab that. Thank you. So I have a, a bunch of things I want to... Well, man, what do we got here? Oh, our friend, Crosby Taylor. Danny, you just met him the other day. He has a book out, and Bex just made one of the recipes from this. It's called The Fit Baker. Now, he's probably the fittest guy I know. <laughs> and he also had a bunch of gut issues similar to what I had. He was trying to figure out those gut issues by reducing the nonsense that is in our diet, the pesticides, the chemicals, the allergens, et cetera, et cetera. And so in this book... He takes a simple approach to baking healthy desserts and healthy foods in general. It's called the uh, the Fit Baker. You made the blondies from here this past week. Ooh. Yep. I think we ate all of them. Yes, we did. Hey, wait, wait, wait. How, <laughs> how do you make your blondies? That's my favorite dessert ever. It's really good. I and mean, his are delicious. He even made them with monk uh, uh, fruit or with uh, maple sugar. You yeah, get to decide. Yeah. We made them with maple sugar because I couldn't find monk fruit where we were. Um, but yeah, you can make them with, with the monk fruit. They're delicious. They were, they, the recipe was fantastic. And it turned out, which doesn't always happen with recipe books. So, yeah. <laughs> so our friend, wow. Crosby Taylor, the Fit Baker, uh, you can check out the book. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. He also, we saw him at the grocery store the other day and he just put out this cookie mix, sugar-free, gluten-free, grain-free cookie mix, monk fruit sweetened. And then obviously you just add your wet ingredients like eggs, butter or ghee or coconut oil, vanilla ac- extract. And I have not opened this yet because uh, I wanted to show it on the podcast. He wouldn't let me open it. I wanted to make <laughs> several of the cookie recipes in the book. I was like, oh, I want to make this one. I want to make that one. But the recipes in the book call for the mix. Mm-hmm. Oh. So even though we had the mix, I couldn't do it. So like, that's what's next. That's you can check next. it out. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. The website is crosbybakingco.com. You can also follow him at Crosby Taylor or at Crosby's Baking 
Co. One other thing, because I got to return this to the library. We were talking about this earlier on the private podcast. We were arguing about whether or not uh, people want to receive penis pics. <laughs> Bex shut that discussion down really quickly. You were uh, building it up like we're going to make TK uncomfortable and he was pretty uncomfortable. I think TK shut down the conversation. <laughs> no, Did actually, I say I'm uncomfortable? It, was, it was 15 <laughs> minutes of conversation. It was pretty expansive. Yeah. For him, yeah. that, that's yeah. a tweet. That's tweet length for TK. If you keep it <laughs> under 15 minutes, brevity is uh, is uh, a crutch for him. No, you guys, you both, you, you both elaborated on each side of the issue. You did it all. I didn't have to participate at all, which is kind of funny given the topic. This is an amazing book. It's like if Don DeLillo, who I think writes the most beautiful prose, by the way, this book is called Acts of Service, if you're not watching the video version, by Lillian Fishman. It's like if Don DeLillo, who writes the most beautiful prose, wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and, but it's never gratuitous either. It's, it's very sensual. It's sexual. It is beautiful. But it's also playing with the dynamics, the emotional dynamics between men and women, women and women, men and men, and understanding like, oh, there are a lot of sort of cultural concepts around, well, these topics that we were talking about today. I won't go too far into it because I used it in one of my how to write better videos. I teach bad writing versus good writing. This was certainly one of the examples of good writing. It's one of the best novels I've read in a long time. It's called Acts of Service by Lillian Fishman. One other book we talked about on the private podcast, we read from it quite a bit. It's called Weapons of Mass Instruction. Bex was really intrigued by this. We grabbed it at the library because we unschool our daughter, and it has given us a path to better understand some of the indoctrination and the unfortunate consequences of conventional schooling. Not necessarily intentional, but the conventional schooling system often propagates things that are unhealthy for certain kids in certain environments. And so we read from this on the private podcast and dove deep into a discussion about that as well. That's all I got for now. I got a few other added values I'll save for next week. That's our show for today, Simpletons. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama, my lovely wife, Rebecca Shearn, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. I'll Bye-bye. see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it